Thank you so much for downloading this episode of So What Do You Really Do? The podcast where I, your host, Detter Dennis Maurer, talks to artists and entertainers about their day jobs. And on the podcast today, uh, you will be able to tell without me even letting you know that this guest and I are really good old friends just because we're on the same path of everything. We're on the same page. We understand each other. We talk about old times. We reminisce about our old days being just drunk, dumb, 20-something-year-old punk rock kids running around Baltimore playing shows and hanging out and doing goofy stuff. Uh, it is a friend of mine who is now at the executive chef of some restaurants throughout Maryland area and former musician. No, not former. I don't know. He's still in a band. We talk about that. Sorry about that. In fact, his band just opened up for Sam Hain at the Auto Bar uh, just a couple days ago in Baltimore. In fact, not just him. Like, this is what I love. His band, who I'm friends with, him and one of his other bandmates, played with not one but two of my friend bands. We're all getting that age where we're playing for, where we're still playing, but we just having fun. And they're having fun. And I love that my friends, three of my friends' bands came together to play a show together. And I wish I could have been there because that was what my life was, was just every day going out, every night going out, seeing a band or being in a band or managing, you know, I managed punk bands. I booked shows that was what our 20s was. And now we're all in our 40s, close to 50s, some of us. <laughs> Not me. I'm still in my early 40s. Uh, which, by the way, I do want to point out a lot of people have been recently saying they've been finding out that I'm 40, going on, 41, going on 42, which is the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Uh, and they're like, you don't look 40. Well, here's the thing. I'm beginning, I, people think have been, have been thinking I've been 35 since I was 18. So I think I've just finally grown into my looks, or you're just all very uh, kind and great liars, but we're all getting to an age where like, hey, we have lives, we have families, we have these things that we do, but we're still playing music and we're not having to worry about that stress of making it. That's one of the things uh, Chad and I talk about, uh, Chef Chad Wells and I talk about on the podcast. I don't even know if I said his name. <laughs> I'm two and a half minutes into this introduction uh, and I've talked about our life together, but I don't know if I mentioned his name, but yes, uh, he is currently in the uh, band over our eyes. Uh, he is also an amazing chef, uh, who, an award-winning chef uh, who has been featured on TV. Uh, in fact, I actually think uh, he has more TV credits than I do. Someone who, who actually works in TV and movies. Uh, of course, you know, uh, I do, I'm on the cutting room floors of some of your favorite TV shows and movies because uh, I like watching casting directors regret their decisions of putting me in TV and movie shows. That's uh, my favorite thing. But yes, uh, Chad and I are old friends. I'm so glad we got to talk and catch up on things because we, uh, you know, he was in a band that I became friends with because we went to see their shows and I was associated with bands and we would just hang out and we just always stayed friends throughout all those years. And he has an amazing restaurant that he runs, uh, that he's happy about. He's a father now and he's an amazing fisherman. Uh, these are all things that we talk about and I'm so uh, happy that he, to have him on the podcast because we also dive deep into some controversial, controversial food feuds. That's it. Controversial food feuds. You say that three times fast, all right? I'm a professional talker, and uh, that was hard for me to say. Uh, speaking of professional talking, um, I guess it's safe to start saying this uh, now. And, of course, if something happens, I can change this intro. I've, uh, uh, I've left the day job world that I was in. Previously, I was working uh, AV Tech at a hotel. I've now been training and will soon, 
I assume, be graduating uh, my training program and becoming a Boston Duck Tours narrator. I will be on Boston Duck Tour boats displaying the city of Boston to people. Uh, And the reason I bring this up is because if you're a really old listener, uh, thank you, by the way, uh, you might have heard what is now the lost episode (laughs) where I spoke with a Boston uh, Duck Tours driver who's a friend of mine. We had to... uh, I had to pull that episode off the internet uh, because of reasons, uh, but I am now part of those ranks, and uh, I'm telling you what, y'all, it is uh, it is really hard keeping Dennis, uh, keeping the snark and the sarcasm and the hatred of Boston that is that makes up Dead or Dennis, keeping it to a minimal. <laughs> The, the the biggest feedback coming back from my trader is one, uh, Dennis, stop trash talking Boston, and two, learn your history. Why are you having trouble remembering your history? Because uh, I had to repeat it a lot. That's why. No, I like, and you're like, oh, Dennis, whatever. You're a comedian, of course. You say no, say snarky things. No, this is, uh, this is this is problematic. Uh, I've been saying things like, uh, uh. You might recognize this building from the movie that was filmed here in Boston, The Departed, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and locally known racist Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, they don't. <laughs> I mean, it's true, but they don't they don't want me saying those things or calling Paul Revere the Elon Musk of the revolution. They get really mad when you trash talk Paul Revere around here. Uh, but I've been having a lot of fun. I'm taking the feedback. I'm trying my best to not. Uh, go too far into what makes me, me. Uh, that is the, uh, abrasive, uh, sarcastic snark, uh, Dennis. Yeah. The rabble rouser. That is dead air Dennis. I'm trying to quell some of those things while I do this, uh, s- this job. Uh, so it's going to be fun. Uh, hopefully fun to continue. will be fun. I'm having fun training. And when I get, uh, graduated, it's going to be real fun. And in fact, we may be bringing on uh, a couple of the the other narrators, uh, and meeting them. Uh, I I would I would really love to bring people who are Boston Duck Tours narrators, drivers, uh, and etc. back on the show and talk about it uh, the way that we did that one time uh, before I had to erase it from the internet. Uh, and by the way, he or she let's see, didn't do anything wrong. They didn't say anything bad on the podcast. It was just a PR kind of thing that happened. Um, but, oh, speaking of PR things, why not talk about this uh, for you longtime listeners uh, or you new listeners? Uh, if you know, uh, I am officially now we are under the banner of the Big Comedy Network. Thank you so much uh, for, for bringing me into the fold of this emerging new comedy network, comedy podcast network, the Big Comedy Network. Um, and I'm sitting here in my studio surrounded by my podcast logo that I designed. Uh, I, you know, I have it mouse pad. I have it... Uh, Coasters, buttons, pins, stickers, all these accoutrements uh, to promote the business. And then uh, business cards and QR codes and websites. And the network created new a whole new podcast logo for me. And people like the logo. They love it. They think it looks so much better than what I designed. It honestly hurts a little bit, but that's fine. I'm an adult. I'll kill my babies, as it is said in the industry. Um I gotta change everything. I gotta re-update my website. I gotta create all new merch. I, I like I've been holding off on ordering buttons and pins because I was like, well, I can't order all of them because this is the old logo and I got the new logo. And 
So yeah, there's a new podcast logo. Maybe you noticed it when you opened the app and you listened to this episode. Uh, but uh, it's, I don't know, tell me what you think. Do you, do you like, the, here's the, all right. I'm not going to say I don't like the new podcast logo. So what do you really do, logo? It makes me uncomfortable. Look, I, I picked it. I approved it. I have no reason to complain. But I will tell you, this is what makes me uncomfortable about it. When I look at it, that logo, it's just my dumb face. That's, <laughs> like, that's my problem with it. Like, I did the same thing when I created merch back in t- 2018, when I created all these buttons and made these cool, and I ordered them, they came in the mail and opened it, and one of the buttons was just a minimalist version of my face. And I'm like, it's just my face. What did I do? Why did I do this? This is terrible. Why did I decide on this? Uh, but, you know, maybe yeah, that's me being insecure. I don't know. Tell me what you what you think. You can you can email me, Dennis at deadairdennis.com, or you can hit me up on the social media at deadairdennis and tell me whether you like the new logo, the old logo, whether it doesn't matter, or if I'm just being neurotic. You can tell me that it's like, Dennis, I think you're being too self-deprecating. Um, but things that aren't self-deprecating. Uh, defecating? Self-deprecating. Uh, here's the other thing. I think... As a professional truck, as someone who's had to talk his entire life, literally, uh, for pay, I feel like there's a problem with my mouth. I'm not enunciating words as well as I used to. Uh, and I feel like it's going to become a problem sooner rather than later. I don't know. Hopefully, it's not Alzheimer's. All right. This intro has already gone way too long. Sometimes I give myself a five-minute limit. We've doubled that. But we've covered a lot of subjects. So... For those who are new to the podcast, thank you so much for listening uh, to it. Uh, the best way, if you came here to because you're like, oh, I like who your guest is and I want to support them, best way you can do that is to share this podcast with a friend. Put it on social media. Tell somebody about it. Let them know they can listen to. So what do you really do? The podcast, speaking to artists and entertainers, everywhere podcasts are potted. You can also leave comments on your favorite podcast app, Spotify, iTunes, iHeart, whatever it is you listen to podcasts on. Leave us a, a comment there. Uh, and that also goes a long way to help my guests become better and more well-known for the things that we bring them on here for. Okay, enough of that. Now, again, my guest, old friend, fun times. You can hear it. Like, I'm listening. I listened back to it while I was editing. I mean, I was there. I didn't need to listen to it. I know how it was. But it was It was so much. This is what what I love doing is connecting with old friends, connecting with people who have similarities to me, people that... I get them, they get me. And that's what this podcast episode is like the epitome of that. We have other older episodes where it's just, you could close your hair. It's just two friends having a great conversation. And I feel like that's what makes for some of the best interviews is that two people who just connect and you get to listen in on it. It's not like inside jokes. It's not like things that are obscure. You just hear two people having fun and talking and you learn more about but who they are and you become endeared to them. And I think this podcast episode uh, is the epitome of that. Uh, And I really hope that you enjoy my conversation with chef and punk rock musician, Chad Wells. All right. Which by the way, I love how like I wasn't like, I knew you were going to have a good microphone because we're, you know, music, man, we're we're audio music, people, audio people. Like they're, even if we're like, I mean, it's so much still like, I mean, you can see, like, it's still yeah. so much of what I'm doing. Like, daily, day-to-day activities is still me and music and, and audio and recording and podcasts and all that, you know. But even if this wasn't it. my day, you know, my job, like, even when we, like, all my other friends who are musicians, 
even if they stop playing and, and they fall off, they're still collecting gear and still being like, well, maybe if I ever start playing again, I might need this microphone just in case. It's it's a bad labor of love, to be honest with you, because it's one of those <laughs> things to where it's like, yeah, could I spend this $10,000 to make three bucks off of it? Because that's kind of how it works now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it. the desire to want to accumulate the stuffs of our hobby never go away, no matter how much we're in or out of that hobby, which I mean, I don't even know. Like, I know you're still playing in a band, but like how, like how often are you, are, are you ganging or is, 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 I mean, is there still the dream to try and be a full-time musician or is that past? I think that's never really existed for me. To be honest with you. I, I okay. think it, it's just always been an enjoyable escape. I think for lack of better terminology, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, I like to do it. It kind of, it kind of brought me where I am through my whole life anyway. So it's always going to be there, you know, and, and it's nice to get little breaks and get to go travel a little bit and do things like that. You know, when I was younger, obviously with the first band I was in, that happened quite a bit more than now, you know, now, you know, we're the end of January, for example, we're going to, we're driving down, we're playing in Tennessee and playing in Richmond. Um, We just put an album out. Um, which, you know, clearly that's another one of those hobbies that you dump a million dollars into and, and aren't going to make anything off it. We just do it for we just do it for ourselves. It's fun, man. It's like a cool way to meet new people and, and enjoy what you're doing and get to say some things you want to say and, and express yourself in a different way. But by the, that is probably the most mature way I've heard somebody talk about uh, their love for the music industry, which, you know, hats off to you, because. I think when we're all young, we all have that, like, granted, I wasn't a musician. I was just hanging out in the scene. I was booking. I was managing, managing, babysitting grown adults who are the same age as me, you know, basically. (laughs) Uh, And just hanging out. And we all, you know, I think we all still always had that dream of, like, this could be a thing. And then we just realize that this is what we are, that, like, playing is what we are. Whether it's making money, whether it's touring or it's not, it's the active creating music playing music hanging out with people that's really why we've always started doing this why that's why we've been doing this since day one um and i think that the way you put it was probably the most mature way i've i've heard from anybody so to, to be honest with you um you know I, i've never been a person who had a dream of being a rock star um you know would it be cool oh absolutely but you know, I never felt like it would be realistic. I mean, like who, who as a teenager wouldn't want to think about trash in a hotel room when you're, you know, touring in Europe, you know, with a pile of groupies and going out in a blaze of glory. But, you know, it, th- that was never something that I personally felt was realistic. I know that we toured a lot and we did a lot of stuff when I was younger, which was awesome. And, and it's something that we do on occasion now. For me, it's always been, you know, I play punk rock. I've always played punk rock. I love punk rock. Mm-hmm. I love all music, but punk rock has kind of always been what I fell in love with and what made me fall in love with music is just rock and roll in general. But with, with punk rock, you know, a lot of people ask me about, you know, over our eyes in particular, we, we get some really, really big shows with a lot of bigger bands. You know, we've played with bouncing souls and strung out and a lot of the bands that we really love. And a lot of people ask, why do we get those shows? And I was like, honestly, I think it's because we don't give a shit. You know, like we, we try, we, we try really hard to sound really good. We really enjoy it. And we kind of just always wanted to be a part of the energy that those shows bring. And if we can be a part of that and make it more fun for other people and have like an awesome time with our friends and get to see the bands we want to see for free, 
and maybe get a free a few beers for free with that like we're, we're, we're at you know what i mean so recording this stuff was is really it's interesting because like all the albums we've put out or the things that, that i've ever done they've really been for me or like for for the band in general for us just to kind of document where we are and what we're doing and and give ourselves a record of what we're doing you know and if people like it and they 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 buy it or you know half the time we're giving them out to people anyway then <laughs> then even better you know what i mean but we've been really lucky with over our eyes because i feel like with this band people have really dug it more than anything that we've ever that i've ever been a part of and i've got people that have been playing music with forever are all playing together and it, it always should have been this way you know we, we kind of got any bad seats we've ever been involved with gone and we're just really really enjoying it so and, and you know we're all either service industry people or things of that nature so we practice in the middle of the night when all our kids are asleep like that that type of stuff so it's really cool because we you know being a chef two of us are chefs and you know we work like crazy hours and we miss yep. like normal people hangs you know we don't really get those so it's cool that we still get these this time with our friends and things like that yeah, which, by the way, I, I figured why you wanted to record late was basically to start recording right after the kids went to bed, which is like, that's a part of life that I'm never going to grasp. I don't know. Uh, like, you know, I'm, I'm terminally single, so I don't ever expect having to deal with kids and like get out of my podcast studio. But like the most I have is occasionally my dog's going to walk in here and shake her head and her, her leash will jingle. And then I'll have to cut that part of the podcast out later on. Yeah, you know, it's crazy being a chef too, um, having kids because a, a, lot of pe- a lot of people are like, dude, do you ever sleep? And it's kind of like, no. I just can blank face, no. No, I don't sleep. <laughs> it's you know, and, and kids and running a restaurant? Yeah. No, there is no sleep. And, and, I come you know, from a family restaurant tours. Yeah, my, bro- yeah. my brother, you know, my brother uh, used to own Matthew's Pizza. So he literally used to live, when he bought Matthew's Pizza in Highland Town, he lived in the apartment above the restaurant. Oh, and God. he would wake up at 5 a.m. to go down to turn on those big, huge Vulcan ovens and get them prepped and ready before anyone else came in at 9 a.m. to start making dough or whatever it was, uh, however long. But, yeah, he same thing. And then, he, of course, he's out. He's he's at the restaurant till close. Then he's out partying. And then he wakes up and does it all over again. Yeah, dude. Um, that First of all, Matthews is awesome. I haven't been, you know, since I moved out away from the city, I've not been there in a long time. That place is so good. That's like, it's one of literally one of my favorite pizzas, and it's so underrated because people that know are like, "Oh, Matthews, that's the best place in the city. That place has always been awesome." But like, I can relate to that. I live a couple miles away from my restaurant, and um, so I'm a lot of times I'm the first first there, the last to leave. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of like it that way um, personally, and you know, there there's a lot of things that come with the restaurant industry that can be quite negative and. Um, you know, I've kind of learned my way around that. I'm not a huge partier these days. You know, I, I drank a little bit here and there, but I'm not, you know, I don't go out running around and doing the things I did in my early twenties, you know, um, partially because, you know, I do have a wife and kids and, um, in the band and now I've become a very, very early morning person. I've learned to come to appreciate being up at sunrise and, uh, <laughs> you know, so that's the time that like you get the peace because, you know, my job is very, very chaotic all the time. And, you know, again, being a punk rocker, it's almost natural because I thrive in that chaos. You know, I, I enjoy it. And, you know, that kind of chaos has always been 
it's always followed me everywhere. So why not be the the creator of it at this point, you know? So, but it's a, a, you know, between having kids in the restaurant, there's a lot that goes on in my life, but dude, honestly, man, having kids is like the coolest thing in the world. You know, like I give, I give my son records all the time and we listen to music. I I get to kind of help him mold some things and it's, it's just pretty cool. And my daughter is, she's at that buck wild age where, I wish I had that kind of energy, but that's that's never coming back. <laughs> it's, never, it's never coming back to that level. Well, what's the uh, cliche now is uh, punk's not dead. It just has bad knees, balding, and goes to bed at a reasonable time. Yeah, dude, I got a shirt. Um, a friend gave me. It says punk's not uh, punk's not dead. It just stands in the back. It's like perfect for me. <laughs> Oh, I'm feeling that, man. The amount of Dr. Souls insoles I put in my chucks just to stay looking cool, but still needing to be comfortable and knowing that my back and knees won't hurt tomorrow morning. Dude, this is how I knew that I was like too old for cool shit anymore is um, I got a new pair of Vans and when I got them, they have insoles now and I was pumped. I, I like, I like texting my friends. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, dude, they have insoles and fans now. But the best thing is all of them were like, what? Are you kidding me? Yeah, I can wear them to work now. I, like, I could do this. So, like, that's, like, kind of, like, the, the factor that you're, like, you're old. You're just like, oh, wow, man. Punk rock really got old. Skateboarding got really old. And now van, Vans grew up with us, I guess, at this point. <laughs> if New Balance could just buy the Chuck Taylor designs from Nike and then make comfortable Chucks, that would be the biggest uh, revelation in my life. Well, then who's going to be the people wearing the white New Balance's while they cut their grass in jean shorts at that point though, because then, then we won't be able to identify the assholes because they'll all, they'll all have chucks on. <laughs> well, let's start with uh, talking about it's a, on the music scene. When did you start? Because I knew you as a drummer. When yeah. we met, you were a drummer and I only knew you as a drummer and I thought nothing. And then you joined another band and someone's like, Oh, Chad's playing bass in this band. I'm like, Chad plays bass. And I was like, Dude, if you thought he was a good drummer, he's 10 times better as a bassist. And I'm like, what? So so when did you start playing music? All right. So th- this was an evolution that happened. Um, mm-hmm. The first instrument I ever put my hands on was a guitar. And, you know, with Over Our Eyes, I play guitar. Guitar has been my love. That's been the instrument I play the most. Um, if I could be, if I could be totally honest, I, I think in reality that came from Guns N' Roses. I like as as like a, a fourth grader or whatever. I think it was like third or fourth grade. Guns N' Roses blew my mind, blew my mind. <laughs> I, I, I got the Appetite for Destruction cassette and I wore that tape out. And I'll still say it to this day and I'll argue to the death. I think that's the greatest pure rock and roll album ever. Written. And, you know, at that slash made me want to be a guitar player. Like just seeing that was like the coolest thing in the world. He's badass top hat, crazy hair and like. You know, ripping that, ripping that last paw. I'm like, I'm doing that. Oh, I'm doing that. So I started out playing guitar. Speaking of Les Pauls, uh, you know, know, I'm not a musician. I played drums for a little while, but what my big passion is now uh, from the pandemic is the ukulele. Oh, nice, dude. Nice. Right. Epitone, Les Paul, ukulele, electric plug-in. And it is... We Uh, we got to record some jams with that because I got an awesome cigar box guitar now too i was looking at pictures of that i was like oh that is a nice handmade uh uh piece of equipment right there that's like that's like my favorite instrument to play now too it's so much fun but you know back to it um i did that but then i started playing bass um i took lessons 
for playing bass for a long time. And I, I don't know why I, it, one day I just decided I wanted to play bass and I was probably in, uh, I think I was in like fourth grade when I started playing bass. I was probably in second or third when I started trying to learn to play guitar, but I didn't take lessons or do any of that stuff at the time. So I played bass for a couple of years. Um, I think I want to say I took lessons for, I was never super into sports. So, you know, I, I, my parents were cool with giving me music lessons because I didn't wanted to do that. So I think I took, I took bass lessons for maybe three years, something like that. And then, um, then punk rock got a hold of me and fuck lessons at that point. It was like, how do I make this louder? How do I, you know, how do I do this different? And then, um, how do I do this faster and louder? Yeah. And, and I think that I kind of got bored with bass because I was taught this very structured, like design of how to play a bass. And I, I went back to playing guitar, but I, I really wanted to start a band. And I had some friends that, that played all these different instruments, but we could never find somebody that played drums. So I taught myself to play drums. I was like, well, screw it. Let me, let's just start playing drums. And um, so I did that. I played drums for a little while. And it was originally with the first band that I was in, which is going to go nameless. You know what band I'm talking about. Um, yeah. We, we could discuss that at a later time. Well, well we don't have to bring up, <laughs> yeah. we don't have to open those wounds. Yeah. So um, that was supposed to be temporary. Um, you know, me, me and another guy were writing all the songs. And uh, then, you know, Kurt was heavily involved with writing a lot of songs. He's in over our eyes now as well. Kurt knew how to play bass. Um, you know, me and another dude were playing guitar for a while. And then um, we never found a drum. So I just said, screw it. I'll play drums. It was supposed to be temporary and it ended up being an eight year temporary. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I just, I, I played drums and, and through that, but then I played, I played bass in a couple of bands, just filling in here and there with people and then guitar with, uh, over our eyes. And then 10 watch, I did both. I played drums for a little while and then, uh, moved over to playing guitar in that band and then, uh, moved over to playing guitar in that band. And then, Unfortunately, that had to fizzle out, which is how we kind of ended up where we are now. It's, you know, Keith from 10 Watch, uh, Kurt, uh, Kurt Springfield has always been with me from back in the day. And then uh, Nima, who I've played music with for a long time as well, playing guitar. And that's had some like evolutions too. almost ended up with me stuck being playing drums again, too, which I just don't want to do anymore. You know, because that, <laughs> that'll end up a temporary all the way until retirement type of thing. But <laughs> You know, and, and yeah, I still, and you, know, you don't want to get all sweaty on stage and, you know, all tired and moving around. And then you're just back there sitting on a, even a, it, the, even the most comfortable of drum throne still hurts after 45 minutes of, of playing. It's you still get up and you have like some weird pain in your tailbone. And it's like, who wants the, who I, wants the, that? I also don't want to carry all that shit anymore. Yeah, <laughs> Honestly, exactly. man, it's like. <laughs> It would be like everybody else is already like hanging out and drinking and everything else. And I'm still like breaking stuff down and carrying things for the next 45 <laughs> minutes, you know, and it always seems like the drummer is the guy who ends up having to pack the van, the entire van, because you have just so much <laughs> crap. And, you know, I, I still really enjoy playing drums. I don't own drums anymore, but like I practice, I like to mess around here and there and it's a lot of fun. But, you know, as somebody who writes a lot, like I, I write a lot of music. And I'm always doing that on a guitar. So when we started over our eyes, it's kind of like the way we write is so cool because it's like, you know, Nemo will randomly bring us on to the table. Like, dude, check this out. I'm like, dude, that's awesome. It works with this thing that I do. And we just have like such this like collaborative spirit between all of us. And we've played for so long together in different iterations and different bands and things like that. That like, 
it clicks so well and it's so much fun. And like every, everything that we do now, like there's no like band arguments or any stupid stuff. And again, it's also because we don't give a shit. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're <laughs> legitimately doing it to have fun with each other. So it's, it's nice being where we are now because it's also one of those things where, you know, I've been in bands before where we tour a lot and we are, we have a record label or something like that. That's really like trying to push us to do different things. We don't, have, we don't want any of that. You know, like if we don't feel like getting together and jamming, we don't and no one cares, you know? So <laughs> it's, it's kind of like we have some shows coming up. We're, we're doing, a, um, we're getting ready to record again soon. Um, we're doing a split with a band from Richmond and then uh, another one with a guy from Baltimore soon. So we're trying to get all that recorded. So like, we'll just get together and write. And then when, when we have a show, we're like, all right, well, let's run through the set real quick. Cause we got to play next week type thing. And then we do that a few times and we're good to go, you know, and then we just go out, have a blast and do it again when we feel like it. Yeah, man, that's, that's nice to hear that, that you're at that stage. I don't know if with comedy, I'm ever going to be at that stage. Like I've known since a young person that being a musician, being an actor, being a comedian, these are all jobs. These are all things that people do and get paid to do. And I had that very early in life knowing it was a job not a pipe dream, not fortune, fame or anything like that. It's a grind and you go to work just like anyone else. It just so happens to be part of this industry. You know I me, mean? I worked in radio for so many years because to me being in radio, that's a job. That's not a dream. It's just a career. And I don't have aspirations for, you know, I don't want to do the Bill Burr thing and play arenas. You know, like Bill Burr just played Fenway. I have no desire to do that. My only desire is just to do shows, collect a paycheck, and continue to keep doing that. I'm not at that level right now. A couple of years ago, I was. Like, pre-pandemic, I was kind of at that point where, you know, I was full-time comedian, full-time act, full-time comedian and actor, and doing a little bit of podcast, podcast recording and producing and editing on the sides, and was making a living. I collected, like, when I did my taxes, I collected all the money together, looked at all my W-2s, and went, I made a... I made... As much money this year as I did working full-time in radio last year doing this. But when you're working freelance and you're having to collect all these paychecks from 42 different sources and, you know, having to, you know, when their pay period is 30 days out and you're six weeks in going, hey, you still owe me money yeah. and chasing all that shit down. That's not what I enjoyed at all. And that's what leads you to poverty is like. You go eight weeks without a paycheck, all of a sudden, all of them f dump in at once, and you're like, okay, cool, I can go pay all my old bills, and now all the money's gone again. Like, there's no consistency. But you, you know where you're super fortunate, dude, is that I know a lot just from playing music and being in restaurants and, and all those things, I know so many people that are, you know, want to be in comedy, or they want to be in, and it's like their side hustle. And you did it right. You've always done it right, dude. Like, you know, we've known each other for how many years? Now? Probably 20 years, maybe more at this point. <laughs> yeah, maybe, and, uh, and probably, yeah, 20 you, plus years. You kind of like, you've always had the focus in the radio and comedy and things like that. And you stuck with it, but you treat it like your job. And you're fortunate. You're more fortunate than you realize because you actually get to chase people down to get the money. You know what I mean? Yeah. I know so <laughs> many people. I know so many people that have been doing comedy and they're like funny people. And they've been doing comedy for... 10 years, 12 years, 15 years. And they're lucky if they make five bucks off of doing it. And it's their side hustle. They don't treat it like a job. So like the mindset that you've went into it with all the time has been perfect. And, you know, I always try to find that side of the coin that, that, that shows the positivity in it. And the fact that you get to chase somebody down for a paycheck doing this, but you still get to treat what you love as a job. That's awesome. 
it's, it's awesome. So yeah, no, I unfortunately cheers to you, brother. There's but and trust me though, in my years of doing all this, there's a lot more time of not getting paid than there was time of me chasing down money. So oh, it's, <laughs> it's dude, it's a grind. It's it's been it's been the same way with me in the restaurant industry, man. Like it, it's it's almost very similar to as a chef. It's very similar to being like in the music business. You know, I'm not in the music business. I'm never going to be in the music. A matter of fact, fuck the music business. I don't like it. I don't like that industry at all. They, they you know, I'm glad to see it being killed at this point you oh, know, it's but, still incredibly predatory and it's and, awful uh, it's it always yeah. has been but it, it's very similar in the restaurant world because you got to carve shit out and you have to keep hammering and grinding and working until eventually people start to take notice and be like oh man this dude's doing this this and this and this dude's doing this this and this and then if, um, you get some people get lucky in the right place at the right time like where i've been very fortunate and they're like bang food network bang uh travel channel and you, you, you get a couple things like that going on and now you're set. Now you can you can get better jobs. You can make better money. You can do all the things that you couldn't do when you were younger. And you, you're still the same person doing the same things. Granted, a little bit more experience under the belt and things like that. But it's very similar. It's a very similar industry with how hard you have to work to get where you are. It, it literally has to be like a, a passion project to be able to to be a chef and make a good living at the same time. Like it's really, it's, it's difficult. I know tons of people, I know people are million times better than me at this and are always going to be that are not, you know, I've just never been in the right place, the right situation because restaurant, the restaurant industry itself, just like music is very predatory and fucked up. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a shitty industry and it yeah, takes it's so forever. exploitative. Like you can, as a chef or a cook work 80 hours a week, eat all your meals for free at the restaurant and still not scrape enough money together to make rent. It's yeah, insane the way that's why the way that some people are treated in it. That's why my place is a unicorn, man. And and I have <laughs> I have fought my entire career to where I, I work so hard so that the people that work for me don't have to. You know, they I want them to come into a stress-free environment. I want them, if they have kids, to be able to spend time with their family. I don't want them to have to worry about how they're putting food on their plate. You know, you know, I've always had that mentality. You know, it's like you ask for a day off, you're getting your day off. Your schedule is going to be the same all the time. You're like I, I, the word that has always made me sick in the restaurant industry is people like to say they're like, "What do you offer? Quality of life." What the fuck is that? Because in reality, <laughs> when they say that, they mean like quality of life means like, hey, you're going to get free beer after work or, or you know, like things like that. <laughs> but any time that was always a red flag for me with restaurants is when places said that I'm like, man, I'm fucked. I'm, I'm going to work. <laughs> I'm going to be working 90 hours a week. Oh, it's, it's the same way. It's like it's the same way when they're like, oh, we're like a family here. It's like, oh, so dysfunctional. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're like we're we're like a family here. Oh, so you live here? You all live together and don't go home ever because that's probably what it is. But so what's what's awesome is like where I'm at now. Before I I went here, um, I, I I was done. Like I was literally done with the business, the industry, everything. And I'm literally like I said, my restaurant is a unicorn, dude. It's everybody is treated so well. Like there's no they they really allow me to have my own views and ideas of how I want the culture to be within my kitchen. Um, you know, Christmas rolled around. We bought all our, all our cooks got like, you know, new Crocs and new, new, uh, kitchen shirts, like stuff that, that plays, that places make you buy your work uniform, which is horse shit too. Dude. I mean, 
if somebody's in a hard position, they get taken care of, you know, and, and again, like I can actually use the word quality of life because like, you know, we pay better than everybody in our area. We do, we give people, you know, paid time off, you know, if you're sick, you don't have to come to work. You know, like it's, it's like, and that's a big thing in the restaurant business. If you're sick, you work through that shit. Not here. Like we really, we really have a unicorn. We have like owners that care and treat us like real people. And we, because of that, it shines now. And you know, the restaurant is slammed. 24 7 this is the week after christmas we're literally going to have the busiest week that we've ever had and every week is like that it's been that way since right after the pandemic you know went back to kind of normal standards here in maryland it just exploded and it stayed that way but because we treat our people so well we put out a good product it makes our people give a shit about what they're doing i care about what i'm doing and we've just become so ingrained in the community that's awesome so i like i have a unicorn and this displays made me it gave me back what I feel that the restaurant took restaurant industry took from me for so many years, which is the, you know, the passion, the drive, and, you know, just the will to continue succeeding. I, I have all that again. And, you know, you really do lose that at times, you know, so it's, it's pretty cool that, that I found it. And, it, and to me in this business, finding that is the definition of success, you know, finding a place that treats you well, lets you do how do, do things the way you want to do them do them the right way, respects your views, values your opinion, values your time more than anything else. Because let's face it, time is more valuable than money at this stage in life. And, you know, it's like I said, it's the best word is this is a unicorn. I have the restaurant that, that treats everybody that way. And it's, it's, it's the best. Yeah. There is a lot of parallels between, you know, what attracts people to punk rock and what attracts people to the restaurant industry. Cause they're both unconventional. They're both, you know, alternative culture, but both offer like, People who are unconventional, a home, a place that they can, you know, like work at waiting, ta waiting tables. Most of the people who want to wait tables don't want to wake up early. So they wake up at noon, go to work at three and work till 2 a.m. and stay partying until five o'clock. Like there's a particular type of person that that lifestyle attracts. And a lot of those people are chaotic. A lot of those people have problems or the people that also get attracted to the to both the, Punk, you know, punk music and uh, the restaurant industry are people who tend to be desperate. They need some quick way to grab money, whether it's back of house or front of house. Not everybody in the industry, but it attracts that toxic element. And sometimes you just get used to living in that toxic element. I know I have. I thought for the longest time that if me and the chef were yelling at each other, it's because we were friends. Like uh, if I'm uh, screaming yeah. at him because he screwed something up and he's mad that I didn't uh, put something in, in uh, coded in right. And we're having an argument. That just means, Oh, we're friends. We're going to have beers later. No, that means we're both dysfunctional. <laughs> yeah. I, and, and you know what? That is something that you, you made a couple of interesting things I've said before. First of all, one of the best quotes ever, um, Anthony Bourdain, we, we all know how important he was to, not it's weird i don't believe he was super important to the restaurant industry in one respect but he was insanely important maybe not the most important person to culture within restaurants that has ever walked the face of the earth and he was like a quote machine like some of the things he said were just so real all the time and it was, it's so sad to see you know how how he went out so rest in peace anthony bourdain but um he, you know, in a nutshell, he said that restaurants are a place where junkies, losers, and misfits come to find family. And it's, ve it's very, very, it's, it's very true, yeah, though. That's right. You know, and, and what's cool about it, I, 
there's a lot of people that that I've found through this this industry that I think that the restaurant business kind of saved them in a way. Um, but I do know a lot of people that it took them in the wrong direction. Um, you know, some some of my best friends are not here anymore because the restaurant industry took them the wrong way. And you know that that, that some people the party doesn't stop. You know, and and the other thing I say about the industry is like you could walk into almost any kitchen and be like, do you play guitar? Yeah. Oh shit. Do you play bass? Oh. Fuck, you play drums? Oh, damn. Like, restaurants are where musicians go to die. Like, it legitimately is like, it, it legitimately, like, everybody is either an artist or a musician or whatever. And that that that's part of what fuels the culture. But I think that it's also part of why a lot of people in the business end up exploited and destroyed. Because they go into a restaurant for the same reasons that partially the same reasons that I did, you know. I went into a restaurant so I could cuss and act like an idiot. You know what I mean? And like when I was in high school <laughs> is when I started doing it. And I, you know, I could go hang out with my friends and I could work at night and I could do, you know, the things I wanted to do. But at the same time, when my band started touring, when I was in like just out of high school and into my mid twenties and things like that, I could, I could get a job. They tell me I can't have off. I could tell them to fuck off, go on tour. And then I'd come right back and I could get a job somewhere else and I keep doing it. But then, the reason I say that it, it kind of lends to people being exploited is some people get trapped and they, they, they go to restaurants and they don't view it as this is my job. This is my life. This is what I love. And this is what I'm going to do. They view it as this is a tool for me to make ends meet while I'm trying to push this passion project. And then one day you realize like, Oh, I did not push this passion project far enough. I didn't devote my time to this passion project. I dumped it all into a restaurant and now I'm stuck. And I tell young people this a lot because, you know, I've done a lot of work with, uh, I've done a lot of work with like different cooking programs and culinary programs. And, I, and I've done some with, um, you know, like troubled teenagers, like culinary stuff with them. I've done a lot of stuff like that through the years. And when a lot of people ask me about, you know, like, what does it take to become, to become a chef? I can cook, but what is it? What, what, what advice do you give me to what's something I should not do or do? I tell people all the time. I'm like, listen, man, I've watched this happen. And this is what you don't ever do. Do not ever as a line cook or anybody trying to work their way through this system uh, in restaurants. I'm like, do not ever drink with the servers. Don't ever do it. Like, that's like the number one thing, mm -hmm. because guess what? You are going to be servers and uh, some cooks even, too. But a lot of servers in front of the house, employees, this is a stop in the road of their life. This is how they're making money while they're going to college to do something else. They're going to get a quote unquote real job and walk away. You want to be a chef. One day you're going to realize you aren't out drinking with the servers anymore. Now there's a bunch of young people out drinking with the old alcoholic. And now you're trapped in a <laughs> restaurant. You're an alcoholic and you're going to and you're and it's going to kill you. You know what I mean? It will kill you. And yeah. like and, and <clears throat> I see a lot. I've seen it a lot, you know, so. It's weird. It's just such a strange, unique beast, you know, but restaurants do give you like the most amazing stories. Like like some of the stuff I've seen no. at, at work, people are like, that happened at work. Yeah, it did, man. That happened at work <laughs> last night. Like that was, it just happened to me. Like, you know. Oh, some of these stories are daily occurrences. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, man. And I, I can give you a plan. I give you, a, I'm going to write a book, man. <laughs> some of the crazy stories I have, either involved working at a bar, being at a bar, 
or I just left a bar. So that's <laughs> all the crazy stories are. Like, and that's the same thing for me as a comedian. I have to teeter that line. Whereas, and I know this because of being in the industry for so long, like my parents owned a restaurant, my brother owns a restaurant, my brother's own, you know, you know, my other brother has been a chef in a bunch of restaurants and he still is. He's the, where is he at now? He's with Barracudas, which is, you know, owned by Billy Hughes. He's the former chef uh, of Pimlico, who's also my older brother's best friend. So it's (laughs) like, we have this like Baltimore incestuous, like. Uh, uh, restaurant tourism, like between like Cosmos, uh, Colado's pub, uh, uh, yeah, w- what's the Nacho Mamas? And like, all of them are my older brother's friend, and they all <laughs> just like all hang out at their own places together. But anyway, point being is like when I'm a comedian at places, I have to teeter that line between being friendly with the bars and clubs that I frequent, being friendly with the stash staff, and not overstepping my boundary with the staff, especially now at 41 years old. Like, yeah, I want to, I want the staff to like me because that usually means that I'm going to get work again at this place. If the staff there likes me, but then if you go too hard, then the management or you go too far, you know, with the staff, they're like, Oh, I don't know. I can't hang with him and anything anymore. So it's like as a band, when you go to play a bar club, you barely talk to this, to the staff. I have nothing, you know, like we all have our, you know, friends that work at bars and the clubs that we go to. But for the most part, you're not hanging out with the staff the way that comedians end up doing. So I always have to teeter that line. And I learned teetering that line from working in the industry, knowing, oh, I can't get too in deep with these people. Otherwise, it's just going to lead to bad times. Yeah. And, and you know, it's weird, man. That, that hospitality and service industry thing where you say it leads to bad times. Can you think of any other industry where you would say that? Like, would you be like, oh man, I can't go to grocery store, get around that staff. I get around them. It's going to lead to awful shit, man. Like, <laughs> like, like, oh dude, I went to Home Depot, hung out with that cashier. I was naked directing traffic in the middle of Route 40. It's, 2 <laughs> it's like only, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like the only business on earth where like that kind of shit is normal. You know, it's just so weird, man. Like, but again, you know, I I drive a very different kind of train in my kitchen and it's awesome. And, you know, there's plenty of my staff, they go out and get fucked up. They're going to, they're going to do what they're going to do. I, you know, I get it, but I do have like a core of people that have been with me for a long time because they really believe in the things that I value and they know that I value them a lot. And they know that, you know, I don't go, uh, you know, they don't work six days if I don't work seven. You know what I mean? That type of thing. They don't work. You know, they're not going to work uh, an extra 10 hours a week if I'm not working an extra third. You know, like they know that like I value their time, their life um, more, more. I put them above myself. At work. You know, and that's that's what that's what a chef is paid to do, man. Like my, it's my my job to like make sure these people like have awesome, awesome time doing what they're doing. And I've got a core of people that this is what they want in their life. You know, and that's hard to find. And it's cool because I've got a lot of people that I've hired people that that were from like a prison program that are on work release. And then they turn around and they're like, dude, this is awesome. Like, I love this. I, like, I can do what I want to do. You guys don't give a shit that I uh, that I killed 17 people in 79. Like, you know, it's just like, you know, like, but you, you find them. And that then sounded they, way too specific yeah. to be no, a generic. No, no, no. That sounded, oh, like, that, that's totally that generic. like that's somebody who's still on the payroll. No, that's totally generic. <laughs> But, uh, you know, <laughs> it wouldn't shock me, man. Like, but it's like you have, 
you know, like those people get into the, the business and some of them turn around, they're like, damn, man, like this gave me something. I really want to do this, you know? So you get the people that you find like that. That's the type of people I seek it, it, like to be at our place. Like, I feel like I don't want to be the restaurant, just a restaurant that people want to come that are dying to eat at. I want to be the restaurant that people want to work at, you know, and people that want to do something with themselves or make themselves better or give themselves, you know, at least a stepping stone to move forward within their career that like we, I can give them that opportunity more than a lot of other people can. So that's like kind of what I try to do, which is cool because it lends itself to a better environment and a lot less of that. I got fucked up with the line cook and ended up naked directing traffic <laughs> in the street type situations. You know what I mean? So like, I, I've got like an awesome crew, like a really, really awesome crew. And I'm like super, super fortunate to have that because this is like a tough, tough time in the business, right? Now. And also the good thing about hiring prison inmates is they already have the tattoos to become a chef. So yeah, they do. And they're probably better than half the better tattoos than half the people that, that you see sometimes. And most and of them probably already ha are pretty good with knives. Good with knives. Um, They're good at burning things. Um, you know, cut, <laughs> like all, the, you know, but no, and like here it, it was weird in the city. Uh, you know, I haven't had to, to use those programs in a long time, but like I linked up with one that was like really awesome. It, dude, it, it was such a cool program because they gave me offenders that were legitimately in prison only because they're poor. And, you know, Baltimore City is, is such a disaster on on. I, I mean, any level yep. you can think of, Baltimore is a disaster on that level. It was cool because like I had met some of the greatest people that had no business ever being in prison. They had no business ever being arrested for the things they were arrested for. They were dealt a shit card in life. And like, you, you get really lucky that like you, I met all these, there was, was there a couple of people that didn't work out that had serious problems? Yeah, like for sure. But I would get these nonviolent offenders that were basically driven to prison through, through poverty. And like a lot of them now, like some of them are sous chefs, they're chefs. Um, a lot of them cook, some of them went back to jail, you know, like it's just the way things are going to go, you know, but it's, you know, working in the city, that's how I found like the best, the best people. And, you know, like my old restaurant, Alewife was like very, very highly regarded. And that was like probably 70% of my staff would come from those programs. And, and they also really appreciated it because other places would get people from those programs and it, the, those restaurants would take advantage of those people. They'd be like, Fuck, they, they have to go back to jail when they leave here. Well, I'm just paying a minimum wage. I paid them the same thing as all anybody else would make that were in those positions. So was cool it was just it, it was it's kind of cool to get to like work with those programs now howard county I, i've not had to i've not had to like work with any of those programs but i would in a heartbeat but i don't think that uh that this county even has it probably because there's nobody there's no real real good criminals in howard county <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah you know you, you need to go down to like well uh you need to go down if you're in howard county you need to go like DC area, you need to go back to like Northeast to start getting some of the good crap. Dude, it's crazy. DC is like rich now. It is a totally different world. <laughs> it's nuts, yeah. man. I was just there. Um, I was just there on Monday. Actually, I went to DC with my father, and it's like every time I go, I'm like, what the heck? like, I don't know. You remember? Do you remember going to the 9:30 club in like the mid 90s? Like, oh yeah, I'll, no, it, it was such a like, bad. We area. were too young to know that our lives were being risked every time oh, we yeah, went to dude. nations. Nine thirty club, black hat. We were we we're moments away from being stabbed and robbed. And oh we were like yeah, seventeen, dude. That Capitol Ballroom area was ridiculous. <laughs> hey, dude, now, like, I wouldn't you got to be a millionaire to live where Capitol Ballroom was or Nation was? 
Yeah, so is it, there now? Isn't it's that insane. where they built a, the the a what, stadium? The Nat Stadium. Yeah, there's a stadium there. There's like high end restaurants, four million dollar condos everywhere, and it's like you can walk around and be like, dude, my buddy got shot on that corner. Like my friend, <laughs> like it's like it's just a totally. I don't know what happened in D.C., but it is it is not the same violent D.C. that we that we do and loved <laughs> growing up anymore. The Anacostia area used to have a million crimes a year. Now it costs a million dollars to get a bedroom there. Yeah, pretty much. It's ex- exactly, exactly nail on the head at that point. Well, you mentioned Alewife, uh, your restaurant there, which I unfortunately never got a chance to visit when I was in Baltimore, beca- coming back and forth visiting. Uh, so I felt bad. And I also haven't been to your new place. I haven't been to any. I have not tried your food. All the pictures look amazing. I still have not <laughs> tried your food yet. And I feel so bad about it. And I have to like correct that uh sooner more than later but let's talk about being a chef because i think alewife was your first chef to chef to cuisine right that was your first first kitchen that you're running no that that was the first one that i was running where it was kind of i i step back a little bit first i preface that by saying like i did this program in high school where um i would go work at different restaurants for school credit Basically, it's because they couldn't get me to stay in school. Like, they were just like, get the <laughs> fuck out and get in a restaurant now because that's where you're going to die. So just get the hell out of here now. So yeah, I'm familiar <laughs> with those co-op programs. <laughs> yeah. So I went and I worked in a bunch of different places. Well, I had a friend um, who since passed on, but he was already kind of a little further ahead than me uh, in the restaurant thing. He'd been working at restaurants since he was like 14 years old because, you know, we used to be allowed to do that. I kind of got to the places that he was going and I got really lucky and got to work with some really good people. So when you are a desired, a desired cook at 19, 20 years old, and you've already got five to six years experience, you get the opportunity to get in better places. So I majorly screwed up and I did that. And I, I jumped for money versus jumping for experience. And I went to one place and, crashed and fucking burned it was not good you know like there was like not uh, you know i really needed help i needed experience i thought i had it i didn't um so i kind of walked backwards and um it it took a tragedy to happen in in my life for me to really say like dude i i gotta i gotta change how this this vision and this focus and how these things are going to work when it comes to this part of this career portion of my life and um then another tragedy happened, which I was like, this is going to be my life. now. This is what I, I got to do this different. I have to do this the right way. So I said, whatever is going to happen in my life in terms of becoming a chef or being a chef or doing this the right way, it's not going to happen in Maryland. So I moved. Um, I moved to uh, D.C. Um, I got to work for I worked for two James Beard chefs there um, as as a sous chef. Um, then I took a job that put me in Orlando, Philly, and Atlantic City here and there, mostly in Atlantic City. Um, and I did that as a uh, <clears throat> as a, a sous chef for a long time. And then uh, I was like, you know, alewife pop fell in my lap, and I didn't want to live in D.C. anymore. I wanted to come home. You know, I kind of was, I was kind of at a point where it was like, I you know, I don't feel, I didn't want to live in Atlantic City. That job was amazing. I love that job. To this day, I would still be there if that, that job was not in Atlantic City. This alewife opportunity popped up, and then they brought me up to a place that they had owned in Massachusetts at the time. And I went up there and was like, dude, this is awesome. 
Like, I really feel like this is kind of, I can kind of do my thing now. I feel like I have regained the experience that I needed, you know, worked with a bunch of great people. Um, and then I did that. And then, you know, eight years later, it, it was time for me to move on. And, you know, I moved on and they're no longer there. They, they, they shut down about a year after I left. Um, they, they closed. I think that they never could get somebody. I don't think they ever were able to get somebody in there that had the same vision I did for the place, or at least understood kind of what their unique vision was. Um, and plus they, they let me do wild shit in that place, man. And we, we were doing stuff that like mm-hmm. nobody was thinking about doing at the time, which was really cool, you know, and it, it, it gave me a tremendous platform and I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. You know, like it gave me an awesome platform and, you know, um, towards the end, it did what a lot of restaurants do. There was a lot of like greed and just shitty things happening, owner fallouts between owners and, and things that like would make anybody leave, you know? So, but that was a good a killer eight year run. And, uh, it, it, it helped me get to where I am now. And, and, Again, you know, I found that unicorn that I love. And this this will be the last restaurant I ever work. And so this is what I wanted to ask you about being a chef when you come into a place. What goes into creating a menu for a place? Like, that's where, like, what is your methodology going? All right, we're going to put a menu together. What items, how do you choose the items that you want to, to display on the menu? How do you find things that you need to, like, cross, use it and cross dishes, like, all right, we can't make this dish because there's only one thing that goes into it that we can't put in anything else. So let's change it. Like, where does all that thought process come into creating a menu? So there's a couple ways that that I will approach anything. I change my menus a lot. You know, first of all, it starts with inspiration. And then it comes to, all right, my biggest inspiration for food is always the strangest things. And it's kind of like music in that sense where I could just be sitting outside one day and it's the same thing. I'm I'm sure this is similar to you in the comedy realm is like, you see something you're like, it's fucking funny. I'm going to write a fucking joke about that. (laughs) You know what I mean? And then, so I kind of like, I could be sitting outside with my kids and, you know, we like to build fires out back a lot. So, you know, we could be sitting at the fire and I could be like, "Hmm, me. Yep. All right, lamb. All right. And then that will, for some reason, and I, I just think I'm wired different. Like, it'll just keep flowing through my head. I'll be like, lamb. And then, you know, the following day, I'll be at work. First thing I'll do is I'll open the walk-in. Damn, those turnips are looking amazing today. All right. <laughs> and then I just kind of like, and then I'll pop like, lamb. Shit, turnips. Oh, crap, this. You know, and it, it, it will, like, it's a weird, like, there's no real rhyme or reason, but as a chef and this is what's challenging is you think of things that you know are going to be great but no one's going to fucking like them you know so like <laughs> i think about all these things that i think are going to be killer and then two things happen either i say a no one's buying that or b how can i get this on a menu what else can i do with these same five things and that's when a lot of times it becomes a group effort um, especially, you know, I don't like to, you know, ultimately the menu is always going to be mine. Um, there's always going to be, uh, input from other people around me. So I could be like, dude, I've got these 10 things. I'm putting this on the menu. You got any ideas of what we could do with this? Do you have any ideas of what we can do with this? What do you think we could do with this? Uh, and then, you know, we kind of 
you know, then all of that kind of co collaboratively comes together. Then I work work towards actually bringing it to life, figuring out how to make it practical in terms of execution, um, figure out if it's going to be sustainably priced, if I can get it locally, um, if it's going to be reasonable and around for a period of time. Like there's all these strange elements that you have to think about as a chef versus just the food, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. So that that's kind of how it happens. And then I think everybody develops this style. And I've been told this a lot that people could look at a menu and say, that's Chad. That's Chad's food. <laughs> that's Chad's food. Because they know, you know, like your style just becomes so, so prevalent. And um, I've, you know, where I'm at, at this stage in my life, I'm not cooking for me anymore. You know, and early on as a chef, you are cooking for yourself. You are literally, you're like, oh, do this. Nobody can fuck with me. You know, like you, you kind of have this <laughs> mentality and like, I don't care anymore. I just want to make food that people really, really like. And there's things that, that I, you don't, you don't ever have to compromise your values in terms of quality or your, 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 or, or details. You don't ever have to compromise that. You just have to make food that people really like. I don't cook for me. I cook for the community. I, I, I want people to be happy. I want to make food that creates a conversation where you're going to put your phone down. You know, I, that's kind of like, that's all the things that kind of flow through my head when I'm thinking about making menus or making menu items. It's like, you know, somebody told me that they want to have wings. How can I make them that are different and cool that no one's ever thought of? I don't want to make shit you can make at home. You know, I want to make things that, that if you're going out, it needs to be an experience. And if, you know, if I'm going to make a burger, I want the, the details in that burger to be so good that you can sit there and talk about it for a week, not just saying like, oh, here's your fucking burger. Eat, eat, eat this burger. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so it's like, I, I just came to this this conclusion like several years ago and that cooking is legitimately community. It's the, the ultimate, it's kind of like the ultimate expression of love for people around you. And when I went to Walker's that mindset, it, it clicked. That's where I think they really understood what I was looking to do. You know, they, they don't quite, you know, I do whatever I want. They don't question me at all. Like, if I'm going to do it, I'll do it. If it doesn't work, they know I'm not going to make a good choice and say, I'm going to keep doing this until it works. I'm not going to do that. You know, so, you know, it's, I think that's what made us survive COVID was the fact that, you know, when you have that mentality as a chef of saying, look, I'm going to take a million details and I'm going to focus on all those million tiny details versus focusing on this big picture of money. And all of those, the big picture and the money comes when when you do all when you pay attention to all of those details and we we do that from front to back in there and we understand it and we really like it so that like i said that's that's what made us part of the community you know that's it i think it makes people understand that as a restaurant you're not there to steal their money you know what i mean like we're here to be at a business we want to provide a service for you we want to be hospitable we want you to enjoy yourself we want you to have some really good food and you know like and that's that's what we do. And that's like my mentality. I don't care if I ever win a fucking award, you know, like I don't need that shit, <laughs> you know, like to me, it's like some dumbass awards, not going to put, put food on anybody's table. You know, that's just going to be something for me to, to beat my chest about and say that I did it and you didn't. And, and I'm just not like, that. that's why I also, uh, a couple of years ago, I was big into doing all the cooking competitions and I won a bunch of them. And now 
I'm, I'm like completely anti that stuff because food is community. It's not competition. And uh, now I, I don't, I won't do cooking competitions. I won't do contests. I'll do one if I'm like helping somebody, you know, like things of that nature, like something for charity. I always, I'll always do things like that. But now it's about, I've just got a different mentality about it. And that all, all of that rant craziness, I just spouted out. That's all what goes into making a menu for me. It's just all of those thoughts. And then, it, you know, you saw how my thought went from here to here. That's exactly what happens with food. Yeah. I'm wired like a weirdo, bro. Like it's, 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 just, it's not normal. It's not normal. Well, that goes back to show the connection because there, there's nothing that brings people together than the two things of music and food. Those are the two commonalities that everyone can come together about. Now, both of them are also very uh, subjective and can also cause the biggest knockout drag out fights, i.e. pineapple. Oh, pizza. yes. Yeah. Uh, i.e. also Taylor Swift concert tickets. <laughs> we can have the fight about pineapple pizza all day if you want. I have it. I got an opinion on it and I'll, I'll give it to you if you want. My opinion. All right. I'll tell I'll, I'll, I want to hear your opinion. I'm going to tell you mine first and see if we agree. Right, is mine is. Fuck it. Let people eat whatever they want. I don't care. Pineapples taste great. Right. Oh, warm I'm, I'm pineapple. Dude, we do brick oven pizza. I don't have pineapples right now because they probably all suck at this time of year. But I do pizzas with pineapple. I really don't give a damn. Like, you know, like my cooks, like sometimes they'll see somebody order like a well-done steak. And they're like, oh, fuck, really? Like, dude, why do you give a shit? Like, you're not eating it. Just do you like to cook or not? If you like to cook, just make the fucking steak. Who cares if, right? who cares if, they, who cares if they don't want it cooked at all? You know, like we're not here to tell people what they like. We're here to give them what they like. You know what I mean? And, and do if it. they if they enjoy that well done, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Now, if they order a well done steak and then complain about it being dry, well, you got nobody to blame yeah. but yourself. Oh yeah, but. that's not that's not my problem. We did what you asked us to. Right. But right. But you if know. you enjoy that steak, if you cut into that that well done steak, you put it in your mouth, you chew it, and you're like, mm, "This is delicious." Then yeah, that's the point of the thing: making food the way that people. Well, I worked with chefs that refuse to make uh, substitutions or changes. And I'm like, this is how the people want it. Just give it to them that way. Like if that's who cares if your snobbery of what foods are supposed to taste like. Yeah. You want to pair items because they complement each other. But if somebody gets that same enjoyment in a different combination of things, then cool. Then you did when, your job. They're still happy. So when, as a chef, when I say no, about things I'm not going to do. It typically has nothing to do with the food itself. It has to do with the execution. You know, people, you know, my kitchen is extraordinarily small. Um, on a Saturday, we're a kitchen that is built for a, I'll say a hundred seat restaurant. We're about a 140 seat restaurant. We're turning about 600 covers at a time out of there. So, I mean, this restaurant is ripping. And the amount of food that we're pushing out of there, some requests people make, they're just not reasonable. And, you know. Yeah. I mean, there is a limit. There's a limit. Yeah, I agree. There's there's things where if somebody's like, can you do this without salt? Yeah. Would would I eat that? No. But <laughs> sure. Like, you know, that's that's not going to, that's not going to, I'm not going to say yes to something that's going to make an impact on the other guests in the building. You know, if they're, I want everything to be regimented and right. And if it's going to make an impact on the other guests in the building or my cooks, the answer is going to be no. 
Oh, and yeah. it's going to be for I mean, those there are extremities. Yeah, they're extremes. Yeah. yeah, and and you know our restaurant, our our menu is so small and changes so much that most of the requests we get, they're they're omissions. They're not like people saying, "Okay, I don't, I don't want that beef. I want a hot dog instead." Like we don't get that kind of shit very often. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, I've seen you've cooked in Dundalk before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hon. <laughs> I don't want new. I look. I don't want no no. Couscous, all right. Just give me a, a a good old Oscar Mayer and put it on a on a fresh bun. <laughs> give me a hot dog. That, that oil, dirty oil, so dirty. That dirty oil. By the way, I will say the nicest compliment uh, that you ever gave me one day. We were hanging out. And you're like, you know, dude. Uh, for someone from Dundalk, you don't have a Dundalk accent. Uh, and that's re- that's very refreshing to hear. That's Jeff. good. So I'm like, that's good right, because thanks. now you moved out of state and everybody's probably like, what is your horrible accent? Because that's what happens to me. And I'm like, dude, I never lived in Dundalk, but apparently I have the Dundalk accent. But I don't know. It just once once we leave the area, people know it <laughs> way more than we do. I'm just I wish I could like perfect that accent and just have it all the time. Like and just just go with it. Just say screw it. This is my life. This is how I'm going to be. And this is how I'm going to talk. And Lean into like, it. Yeah, I'm just gonna. I'm gonna get it right. No, but like, you wanna wash my clothes in the zinc with water and get it up there on Blair Road from Home Depot. Spot on. My dad dude. had a bad Baltimore accent. Uh my dad had. I like. I had a little bit of one, but then I did work really hard to lose it. It'll come back every once. If I'm hanging when I come back home and hang out with my friends, like, and start drinking a little bit, there, there'll be a little elongated in my speech. Yeah. But it's Dumb not even Dennis at the worst. Out. It was not that bad. Yeah, I. I, like, I oh I'll, man, it's Dundalk the, Dennis. It's like your alter ego. <laughs> hey, I'm out. gonna wash this place clean. <laughs> Does it happen worse when you drink? A little bit, but only when in Baltimore. Not up here. When I get when I drink up here, it doesn't happen. Only in Baltimore will it happen a little bit. I've caught myself saying, "Yeah, I'm gonna go to Washington tomorrow," and they're like, "You're gonna go where, Dennis?" Oh, shut up. <laughs> yeah, I would probably if if that happened to me on that level, I'd probably talk to myself in my head too, and I, it would probably have a Baltimore accent. yeah that's one of the things that i that let me work in the radio industry for as long as i did is that i had a similar thing to you where i i made the realization that people will never think about music the same way that i do it is subjective and it is not upon me to tell people what they should and shouldn't like and that's why i worked for three pop stations a hip-hop station three country music stations. I worked at a gospel station for a little while. I worked at and every format of basically every single format of radio because I was just, it's a job. I'm going to go there and make money. And that's all I care about because even just being a part of that industry was exciting enough for me. I get it now. Cause I'm still always looking for a job. Even when I was, you know, uh, even when I was out of the business, I'm always looking for, for work back in the business. And one of the questions I would always get is, for producer roles is like, Hey, you have a lot of on air experience. Are you going to be happy working behind the scenes? Are you okay with working behind the mic, working behind the camera out of the spotlight? And I'm like, yes, because I got in this industry to create entertainment. I like create, I like being a part of that entertainment creation process. And I feel like it's very similar for you as well, where you like being a part of the food industry process, creating food. That's going to make people happy and satiated and have a conversation and be and have a enjoyable time out. Yeah. You know, and, and that's nail on the head. I mean, like I, I really enjoy 
the whole production of it, you know, and then when it comes down to the prep work and, and I like kind of directing it, you know, if that makes sense, like there, mm-hmm. there is a, a very interesting orchestra that has to happen uh, in a kitchen to make it operate properly. And I think that this is the re- kind of the reason that people think chefs are crazy. Um, and like we get real heated because I don't ever get angry. You know, like I, I have this mentality that it's only food. I get really loud and really intense. I'm not mad. It's literally because like <laughs> the production that has to go into this, it's like putting on a show. You know, like there's so much that goes into just making this 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 orchestra work. There's just so many pieces and moving parts that have to go. And I enjoy not only making those putting those pieces together but kind of assembling those pieces, making them sing, and then seeing the end result. Like, I really, really like that element of it. And then I'm also a nerd about the industry itself. You know, it's <laughs> it's consumed so much of my life. It has taken a lot from me. It's given me a lot. And, you know, so it's up to the things that need to change and the things that need to have a, a spotlight shine. It's up to kind of people like me to 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 do that, and an ex- and to some extent. So I'm a nerd about the culture in the industry itself, you know. And and I don't. I tell my son that chef is a four letter word. Like I don't want to ever hear him say that he wants to do this, you know. But but uh, but you know, like I, it's it's all encompassing for me. It's not just the food, and the food is where it starts. And, but just that whole production and and movement and everything that goes into it is what I really enjoy more than anything else. And honestly, man, I I really, really enjoy the people that like, that I work around and that I work with, you know, so I would be in the trenches with those people, no matter what position I'm in, in the restaurant. I don't care if I'm in the dish room, I don't care, whatever, you know, like I, 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 there's things I love about working in dish. There's things I love about running the service. There's things I love about being in prep. There's things I love about doing the orders. There's things I love about the quiet time where I'm sitting at a, at a, at a table putting P and L codes on invoices. Like it, it just, it's all encompassing, you know, but my favorite part about working in, in food on, from the food side, I, I really, really enjoy sourcing. Um, I'm a very big proponent of, of, you know, invade using invasive species, uh, using local whenever possible just uh, seafood sustainability or sustainability as a whole. So it's kind of like there's so much outside of the industry that, that I'm such a nerd about that pertains to it, you know? So like, mm-hmm. that's kind of the stuff I really, really enjoy about it. Well, I'm glad you brought up talking about invasive species and <laughs> sourcing local because one of your big passions is fishing, which is, is, is that a an adult hobby or was that, something you used to do young as a kid because you were, I know you're not born and raised in Baltimore. You're from Hawaii, right? Originally. No, like I know you moved so, here very young, but yeah, I, we moved from Hawaii to Maryland when I was four. So yeah. I'm not from Hawaii. I'm from Maryland. No. You know, like yeah. um, I, I grew up, I grew up in Ellicott city and um, you know, I lived there and, until I moved to Baltimore city and then some other traveling, but no, I've been fishing since I was a little kid. Um, that, that is, over everything that is my passion in life like and now i fly fish which was like 
the worst thing that could have ever happened to a fisherman is to teach me to fly fish. And now it's like, now it's like a crazy obsession. Um, I mean, there's nothing that I could, I, I can literally work, get off work at like midnight after working from eight in the morning or something crazy like that. I can still get out the three and go fishing. I had no problem. with it. Like it's, it's like, and, I, and I'm happy to do it. Like, it's awesome. But that's kind of what brought me into the whole seafood sustainability and invasive species thing was just that, that, fishing it and like i said earlier inspiration is kind of what drives everything and i think nature is hands down the best inspiration that any chef could ever have and if nature doesn't inspire you you're a piece of shit you're not a chef and you shouldn't be a fisherman. <laughs> like like flat out well let's talk about the invasive species because yeah. <laughs> you're you were for a long time i don't know how what i mean this is how big of a you are into invasive species we're going to talk about uh snakehead fish in a second mm -hmm. but like you're on, you know, you're on the U.S. Geological Services website for snakefish, right? Snakehead fish, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, I am. Um... Like, you're the poster child that the government goes and like, oh, you want to deal with snakehead fish? Here's Chad Wells. You can <laughs> talk to him. He's he's the king of snakefish, snakehead fish, which for those who are not from, who aren't fishermen or are from the Maryland area or China or Africa, yeah. <laughs> tell people listening what exactly a snakehead fish is and what's the problem with them. There is a lot of back and forth about the actual problem, whether it's a problem, whether it's not. I'm going to tell you what science says, and I'm going to tell you where I'm coming from. Um, there are fish that's not native to our region. Um, we do not know how they got here. There is several theories about how they got here, but uh, I think they were found in 2008 in Maryland for the first time. And yeah, I remember like early 2000s like yeah. when I was in college hearing about how big of an issue and it people, was. They were found in a pond in Crofton, Maryland. There was one found. They were so scared of these things that they shot the whole pond, just killed everything in the pond to try to get rid of them. Yeah, well, they're nightmare-inducing creatures. Yeah, they're so terrible. They're te they 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 have sharp fangs, the big huge bug eyes, and they can walk around on land. Like they will chase you across the land. They're all the they're alligators without limbs. Do you know they made a movie called like Snakehead Terror? right when they found those things that was like a sci-fi I'm dead serious. I have, it. I have oh, the I old DVD it. of it, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, so they, they basically, they got in the waterway unbeknownst to department of natural resources. They were already fucking here and people knew they were here. That was the one where they could pinpoint it, identify it. They knew where it was and they could start the campaign to say like, kill these things. If you see one, kill it, get it, get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. Things, things have changed dramatically from that standpoint now, because guess what? They're everywhere. So like everything yeah. they said was going to happen, it happened. It definitely happened. So for perspective, the first one I ever caught was in 2010 and I caught it in the Potomac River and I, I didn't actually land it. I lost it. I knew what it was and I became obsessed with catching one of these things. So me, a buddy who worked for Department of Natural Resources, I went on an electroshock boat with him. It was not legal to serve them in the United States, but doing the research, I was like, they eat these things everywhere. Why aren't we eating them? You know, like if they're here, I mean, we, as humans, we destroy everything, like anything within the environment. Yeah. If, if it's desirable, we're going to destroy it, deplete it from the, from everything. And then talk about how we wished we still had it. So <laughs> I was, you know, I started, I get to talking to, to my buddy and I'm like, you work for DNR. Like, what do we have to do to, to sell these things? Cause like we're on this electroshock trip. There's shitloads of them. I'm like, we're catching them everywhere. And like at the time, no one knew how to catch them. 
And everybody's doing crazy shit trying to catch them. But everybody wanted one. It's like Bigfoot, man. Like everybody's like, oh, I got, I'm getting Godzilla today. And, you know, at the time, you know, at the time we're like, we're catching like six pound snakeheads and thinking that we're the shit. Dude, I caught one 14 and a half pounds last year. Like we find Jesus. them. They, they've, they're catching them. There's been bow fishermen have shot them near 20 pounds now. Like they're, in, they're insane how fast they grow. But for perspective, the first one I caught in the Potomac was, it was probably 2010. Fishing in bass tournaments in the upper Bay region, which is like the Susquehanna region, nowhere near the Potomac. Every once in a while, somebody would bring one back in a bass tournament. I remember I said to this guy, this was a couple years ago. I said to him, I was like, this is not good. And he was like, oh yeah, well, you know, they're not that bad. They're not going to do this, whatever. I was like, brother, next summer, you tell me this. Tell me that this is not bad because I've watched this happen in the southern part of the state. And I was like, whether they balance out in a couple of years, whether they do the whatever, this is going to get fucking ugly really fast. The following summer, I shit you not, you can't go out without catching them anywhere in the Upper Bay region. Every single tributary from Baltimore City all the way into Delaware. If you go out and you can't catch a snakehead, you don't know how to fish at this point. There's so many of them. <laughs> and they exploded in a year. But in that year, like a year to two years now, we're catching them like 10 plus pounds in two years. So therein lies the problem is that they, they're, not, they're not doing what a lot of people want you to believe they're doing. They're not eating everything. They, they're not going and eating all the native fish. What they are doing is they're depleting all the native resources because they, they expand so rapidly, they grow so fast that fish have to, other fish and other indigenous species have to compete with this. So that kind of is the problem in a nutshell with them. They're not going to walk across your driveway and eat, eat your pet. Like they're not, they're not like, that. you know what I mean? Like <laughs> they're not sea coyotes. Yeah. They're, they're pretty cool looking creatures too. They look like, they look like a python. You know, like they're, they're cool looking yeah. creatures. They look like a, a cross between like an eel and a python with teeth, you know? And so I mean, it, you're saying cool. I'm saying nightmare inducing, but you know, tomato, yeah, tomato. I mean, <laughs> hey, potato, potato, six of one, half dozen of the other. So anyway, we worked with, um, with the state to be able to serve them. And as I was the first, got to be the first person in the country to legally serve one that was caught in our country. Um, there, they were big in the aquarium trade at some point, and now they're you know it's a, they're illegal to to bring into our country at all at this point because they're every they're every, they're like the whole eastern seaboard is completely littered with them now. So um, one day we had the idea, we got one, we ate it in every which way possible, which was the weirdest thing because I, that's the first time in my life that I ever ate something that I wasn't quite sure any, anyone had ever eaten. So I'm like <laughs> you know like I knew. I knew that they're eating them in Asia. I knew it was going to be safe. You know, like I knew all of that stuff, but like no one in my group or any person that I could find had ever eaten one. And I'm like, fuck, like, what, what am I going to do with this thing? Like you ever calling people? Like, you ever eat a steakhead? You ever eat this? No, no, hell no. That's an ugly shit. I'm not eating that. You know, so like, <laughs> so we did it and we did a bunch and we did it all these different ways. And then we put together a dinner with, um, I got a bunch of my, my friends that are chefs that shared the same mindset as me of like, you know, sustainability and, and that type of stuff. And I'm like, fuck it. Like, let's start trying to, trying to get these things eaten. The state and department of natural resources was like really strong behind me. And like, let's create a market for them. You know, let's, let's see if we can do something to try to get them out of here. Best case scenario, we can get this population under control a little bit. 
you know, worst case scenario is that money is going to involve itself and it's going to be a problem, which we'll get to that in a second because it kind of has happened. But dude, when I did that dinner, never in a million years did I think it was, it was going to go down like it did, man. It exploded. We did, um, 60 people for the first dinner. Um, we had to do the, t- the, when we announced that we were going to do it, we ended up having to do a lottery because we had like hundreds of people wanted to try it because no one had ever tried this before. Oh, wow. So, I would have a thousand percent would have tried it just yeah, for and, the experience of it. And dude, it, it's a, it, honestly, it's awesome fish, man. And it's, it's, it's super helpful. If you eat a snakehead, you're not eating a rockfish or a crab or, you know, whatever, like other things that have competing all right, let's issues, not, let's not talk yeah. crazy here. Of course, we're going to still eat crabs. We're still well, I'm not crabs. saying I'm not saying it, but at that given time, like <laughs> at that given time, you're eating snakehead, not a rockfish or a crab, you know, like, but they're, they're like a delicate white meat, super, super clean tasting. They're not pondy at all. They don't, they taste almost more like a saltwater fish than a brackish or freshwater fish. They're not fatty or oily. They'll take any flavor you give them. They're almost, they're almost like a fish, like, uh, like, uh, I don't know, like cod in that respect. Like it's okay. very not fishy at all, you know, which is great. Um, but what happened subsequently to that was just insane. I, I had every single news company on fucking planet earth, like beating down my door about this. It, it was, it was insane. I was on, I had Russian media. I was on a new, a morning news show in Canada. I was on, um, I mean, just like everything. I was on like radio shows in California and like <laughs> just crazy stuff. And it was like, holy shit. Like, like, how is this happening? Like, what is going on? Like, everybody wanted this, dude. I was buying so much snakehead that I had six different people killing them with bow and arrows that were the only people I could legally get them from at the time. I had six people <laughs> killing, killing snakeheads that could not keep up with how many of those fucking things I was selling. And then, um, wow. Then like all hell broke loose because Andrew Zamarin saw it. He was going to be doing an event in Baltimore. Who's Andrew Zamarin? Uh, Andrew Zamarin from Bizarre Foods on uh, Travel Channel. So he was going to be doing an event in Baltimore and his people hit me up and they're like, can you come do this event with him? Um, he wants to try snakeheads, whatever. I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, yeah, I'll do it. So I made this snakehead ceviche. I had to get so much snakehead. I had to do like one and a half ounce samples for like 1500 people. Oh, and um, this is also the same time my son was born. So like he, I'm literally like in between prepping, going to the hospital for my son to be born, going back to prepping and serving 1500 people. It was fucking crazy. But I got to be on Bizarre Foods and then that changed everything with this. I mean, dude, I had people from all like the chef from Gramercy Tavern in New York contacting me asking how to get snakeheads. And I'm like, dude, I don't even know if it's legal for me to like get them to your state like i I don't you know i don't know anything about but i mean like everybody trying to get them everybody contacting me people that fish were contacting me like hey man like if i come from fucking siberia can you help me catch a snake it was it was it was nuts it it was absolutely crazy but it was cool because it did exactly what it should have done it became the sexy poster child for invasive species that allowed it to be normal to say i want to eat a wild boar i want you know i want to eat these feral hogs Oh, I want to eat this uh, mustard garlic. It became normal. And then we have a, a big, big problem with blue catfish in the Chesapeake Bay region. They're arguably worse than snakeheads, what they're doing. I, blue catfish is everywhere now. Pretty much any catfish that you eat in a restaurant is blue cat. And it's invasive. And that's because of what was happening with snakeheads at the time. And that is a really, really incredible thing and that I got to be a part of from the beginning. You know, and that's, the, that's awesome, you know. 
it also led me to getting to be on uh, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. I got to be on that and show, um, show at the time was the state record snakehead that I cooked for him. Um, but I had snakehead and wild boar I got to show on there with the invasive species, which was really, really cool. You know, so that's that's kind of how that whole thing turned into what it was. And it's still now. I mean, like, I don't really serve it often right now. And um, every time summer rolls around, man, like I get flooded with emails and everything of people either trying to catch them or trying to eat them, one or the other. Yeah, I just I just filmed with a, I just filmed Snakehead with a kayak company that want, wanted to see how they're cooked so they can help it to sell kayaks like that. Like that's insane. <laughs> like literally, it's insane. Like, These hey, are you the want, best vehicles to catch snakeheads yeah. in is Jameson kayaks. Yeah, they could just like show a picture of a snakehead swimming through the water and be like Dodge trucks, and it sells. Like it, it's like the craziest <laughs> thing, but like. I mean, that, that's just, that's how that whole thing went down. And, and I think it was super important at the time. And like I said, now there is some downside to it. I, I think that there's people now that are, that are holding them and they're, they're doing things they should not be doing uh, because there is a lot of money in that, in that industry. But we see that with everything in food and, you know, you just got to know your source and trust who you're getting your stuff from that, you, that they're, they're not breaking any laws or compromising your values at all with it, you know, but now, you know, you're allowed to release them if you catch them. You know, there's, it's, they're not going anywhere. You know what I mean? They, there's even people that want them protected at this point, but that's never going to happen because they're, they're definitely, in my view and in, in the view of science, until science tells me otherwise, they're, they're a problem. They're definitely a problem right now. All right. What's your, what's, if someone calls you up to say, hey, I have a snakehead fish, what is the best way to prep it? What is the best way to cook it? What is your favorite dish for snakehead fish? So what I tell everyone is that everyone fries it. And I think you're, you, is it good? Sure. But you're, you're doing a disservice to the textures and flavors of the fish. You're, you're getting texture off of coating it in flour and throwing it in the deep fryer. I tell people all the time that I think that it lends really well to being sauteed, that the smaller fish mm. are better in flavor. I don't want to eat a 12 pound snakehead. I want to eat a four pound <laughs> snakehead. You know, like the, the it, it really goes that way with all fish, to be honest with you. But the smaller ones have a, a better yield. Uh, texturally, they, they don't they don't tend to ever get like mealy or tough at all. They, they have like perfect, consistent texture. So they lend really well to anything sauteed. So I usually tell people um, I have a, a recipe that's on Food Network site. I usually will direct people to that. It's really easy to make. Um, I also it's um, that same recipe or a similar one is in a, a, a couple different cookbooks that people have put out over the years and asked me for it. But it's just a simple taco and it's really good. It lets the fish be the star and shine and they can kind of see what it is. It's simple. It's approachable, um, which I think being approachable is the most important thing for somebody who's eating something that they've never experienced before. So, it's, you know, it's simple, it's approachable and it's it's good, you know, and, and that's what I usually will send people to. And you can, if you're listening to this, you can find a link to that recipe in the description of whatever your favorite podcast app that you're listening to this on. All right. Yeah. That's the thing is that I have the same opinion about the impossible meat. And I don't know if that's a contention for you or not. I love the stuff. Uh, I made a bill in 2017, 2016. I went to the second place to ever sell impossible meats, Momofuku Nishi in Chelsea, New York just so I could try this burger because I was following it for years. And here, when it came to Massachusetts, the first place in Massachusetts that started selling it is this like 
woke hippie vegetarian place called Clover. They do great food, but they're also a little like, you know, yeah. a little pretentious vegetarian food. But they try to do it like on the go, like fast vegetarian food. The food's really good. So they got it and they did two dishes immediately with it. They did it as a breakfast sausage. And then the second one was they did it as a meatball sub because they wanted to pay respect to Boston's Italian North End heritage. Whatever. It's fine. It's in a pita because that's the only bread they have. Is So it's a meatball sub in a pita. There's some pissed off Northern Italian people are from Boston right now over that. And it's delicious. Don't get me wrong. It's good. But I started talking to their chef about it, that the, the you're doing the impossible meat a disservice by covering it in all this marinara sauce. It's a good sauce. But here's the problem is the beauty to impossible meat is it tastes like meat. Anything's going to taste like a fine meatball if you cover it in enough sauce, but you can't taste how that this meatball tastes like meat. And I think they were doing a disservice to the impossible meats by doing it in that fashion. Well, uh, why not eat meat? Like I, I don't, it, it, this is like a weird thing that I well, constantly, because I, you don't know this. I had two heart attacks and a stroke. So no. So here's the thing though. <laughs> I need, I'm trying to find as many burger tasting things that are also cholesterol free as possible. So there are things, there are things for you that are a million times better for you than that that taste a million times better that you can make other people can make that kick the shit out of that stuff. Right. I never understand why people that are vegetarians don't want to eat vegetables. Like, I just don't understand it. Like, <laughs> you know, I have a lot I'm of people. I'm not vegetarian. I, let, let's get that. No, you, you're, you're you limited, limiting the, the red heart meat. Attacks, yeah. I needed to like, I had to make choices if I wanted to continue to enjoy foods. I had to make choices. And one of those choices was when I can find a cholesterol-free alternative, I'm going to take that alternative as much as I can. And I'll tell you what, dude, like, because I had the heart attacks before Impossible Meats was available everywhere. And so one of the things that got me through, like, say, like Morningstar and, like, all the meat substitute ones, some are good, most are awful. What really, honestly, throwing it back, like – if I wanted something quick, satiable, and on the go, frozen vegetables, like, de- de- you know, defrost them in the thing, hit, throw them in the pan, saute them up a little bit, throw in some hot sauce in them, throw in a wrap, bam, quick, easy, and, and thing. And I was like, oh, this is delicious. It's the hot sauce. Gives me that taste of I'm doing something bad. But meanwhile, I have, the, like, the hearty meatiness of these vegetables that were frozen four minutes ago. So, I like veggie burgers. I, You know, we make... We make one at the restaurant. We make a black bean one that's killer. Like, I've made a bunch I've of them. I've had some of, great ones. I made them out of mushrooms. I make them out of whatever. But I still, like, I understand, like, having the alternative. But I still don't understand why it's so almost frowned upon for a meat eater to enjoy something that is that's vegetarian. Like, I don't think that you should have to try to make things taste like meat. Because there's so many things that are badass that, like, we're conditioned to not like almost. Like, here's something crazy. Do you know how many people get in my ass because I don't like bacon? Like, seriously. <laughs> like, I don't Dude, like it's bacon. It's so overrated. Like, bacon is good, but it's everywhere, and it's like, please stop. Dude, I don't want I have, bacon anymore. Yeah. People call me you. all kinds of shit when I tell them I don't like bacon. And it's like, dude, <laughs> like, if you were an alcoholic... I wouldn't be like, yeah, fuck you, pussy, because you didn't want to drink. 
You know what I mean? But that's how people act when you don't like bacon. Will I eat bacon? Of course, I'll eat it. You know, but like, I don't like bacon. But I feel like a lot of like vegetables and vegetable related things, people are like, that's how people behave with it. It's strange to me. But like, I don't, I'm not a big proponent of, uh, you know, I like things that are alternate meat, but I'm not a big proponent of like trying to make everything taste like meat. Because typically when they're doing it, it's something not natural. It's shit tons of salt that they're doing. I don't understand why, like if you want the alternative, eat the alternative, of course, but learn to make some alternatives too. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. or try some different alternatives. Because of the heart attack, that's why I got into falafels. I never had a falafel until until I had a heart attack. And falafels are great. I love them. And there's so many places here in Boston that sell, like even like, uh, the, the hardest part about eating vegetarian is eating on the go. That's the worst part is like, oh, yeah, if for you, sure. you, like you have to make so much of your own food here in Boston. There is a lot more fast food, vegetarian alternatives. And one of them is there's tons of like fast food falafel places. And I'm like, yay, I love falafels. This is great. Yeah. Why I, did I not eat these before my heart attacks? Well, like I get people occasionally at the restaurant that will like lose their shit because we don't have it. And I'm like, listen, we make all, everything here from scratch. I'm not buying impossible burgers for you. I'm not doing it. Like if you're a vegetarian, we have every fucking vegetable you could think of. We have pizza. There is a million combinations of pizza that you can make, but you don't want vegetables. You don't want vegetarian (laughs) dishes. You don't want pasta. You don't want salad. You don't want any of this. Why the fuck do you want something that just tastes like meat? Like, I, I just don't understand it. Like, Eat, eat vegetables. Like, there, there's nothing wrong with it. Like, sounds good, I've had man. I've like, great black bean burgers. And I'll, hell yeah. I'll, I go to a lot of places, and I'll try their their vegetable burgers. I'll try black bean burgers. A lot of them are great. There are some that I've had, and like, oh, I'm never going to eat that. Yeah. Again. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's, you tried. Okay. Yeah. You tried. <laughs> a for effort. F for execution. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, 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 I mean, it's going to go that way with anything. But I just, I, I just, I, that, the, the like the beyond meat and it's gotten like impossible and all the other ones, dude, I'm telling you, if you look at the ingredients of that, like I think impossible was the one that I was like really hip to their ingredients. It was like, I'm not fucking with that. Like I can't in good conscience give that one to somebody like it's so bad for you. And it was just like, well, let's see. I found like what turned me on to it was the, it, the, the story of it, the science behind it, because a couple of MIT graduates were, you know, doing a thing where they're like, basically cows are made up of vegetables. Cows only eat vegetables. That's what makes their cellular DNA and stuff like that. So on a basic scientific DNA level, cows are made of vegetables. So how do we get the, how do we skip the middleman? How do we make the vegetables (laughs) into the meat? And I was fascinated with that story. And then of course what happened, you know, I had two heart attacks and a stroke and they started selling it and putting it in restaurants and stuff. And I was like, it tastes like for me, I can have a burger and not feel guilty about it. And I know there's always the argument of, oh, they're chemicals. There's this and that. When you look into it, it's like six or eight ingredients. They're not that big. Everyone always likes to point to sodium, which a lot of the vegetable things are high in sodium. Impossible meat's not. That has a good level of sodium. I have to add salt to it when I cook it. So I'm not going to be the apologist or the defender of it. So. I don't know if I it's mean, impossible if you're making or great beyond. food at your restaurant too. Yes. People should be trying that as well. I think what I love about the impossible meat is the science and the convenience of it. 
It is no, definitely I, not conveniently priced. That's the worst part. No, I was going to say it's crazy expensive too. Like it's mm-hmm. the, and what you see in a retail standpoint, believe it or not, a lot of that stuff at wholesale is actually more expensive than retail because oh. they would, you, they're mm-hmm. not going to sell you retail packages, pack sizes, but those retail pack sizes, they contract all that shit. And I know when, um, I think that where a lot of this stuff changed is once it went into the mass scale markets is when they started adding a lot of shit to it. Cause I remember it was either impossible or beyond one of those two. When it first came out was hundred percent natural and they don't even put that on their packaging anymore. Cause it's not. And that's part of the reason I won't sell that stuff in the restaurant. Not just because of that, not just because of the, it, 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 it goes against my values to sell something that you can buy in the store. Um, is because I don't know what the fuck is in it at this point. Like, and I think that starts happening with a lot of mass scale stuff. If, if I don't know what's in it, I can't, I can't in good conscience put that in your body. You know what I mean? If I don't, if I don't know what's in it, I, I just can't do it. It's, it just, it goes against, it goes against my values. Hey, if you like it, cool. Not my problem. <laughs> you know, that's, that's for you, but you're not going to get it from me. You know, like, that's just kind of the way I view it. But like, it has some like cult people, man, like the anti pineapple on pizza people there's people that are like oh, what how are you even open if you don't have this like you're one of <laughs> fucking 1200 people that have been in here in the past week and you're the only person that's asked for it but you're legitimately mad about it. like it's like it it blows my mind man yeah i mean there is a lot of unnecessary passion and hatred when it comes to certain things and i get that that's uh why i don't know like like i said i made a pilgrimage to try it. That's a lot of passion for it. Oh, yeah. But I'm also not going to fault a place for not carrying it. I remember when they first came out with, with uh, the, the one that they were selling in uh, New York. The big thing was that it bled. And I remember I was like, that is sick. That is awesome. You know, what I mean? like, because at that point, it was like somebody went out of their way to figure this whole thing out. And this is really, really cool. I just think once the mass markets get a hold of it is where it's like, yeah, not for me. Not gonna be my thing anymore. Yeah, Impossible yeah. Meat tried to hold off doing it consumer for very lo- for a long time, and this is what made me mad. Is prior to like when they were only in like a couple restaurants. One of the things that they kept talking about is they want to make this price sustainably. They wanted to get it to if they ever sold it consumer. They said they want to get it down to three dollars, four dollars a pound, and I'm like, that's less than beef, and they did not hit that mark at all. And the fact that's what makes me mad is they don't even sell it in a pound. They sell it in 12 ounce packages. It's like nine bucks or 12 ounces. So when I have to replace it in, like I'm one of my favorite things to make is an impossible shepherd's pie. And what I have to do is I have to buy the 12 ounce package and then I have to buy a package of their burger patties and take one burger patty and add it to the package just so I have 16 ounces to make the pound for the recipe. And it drives me crazy, but it also tastes so good. <laughs> I, th- I think that they, I want to say when they come in, this has been a couple of years, but they have like their own reps that come and they say, Oh, well you can get it through this vendor, whatever you want to try this, blah, blah, blah. Let's try it up against this different brand. Like they came in and and gave me one. I want to say that it was like $13 a pound. It it was like 12. It it was something crazy where I was like, are you nuts? Like I, like I can't, you know, when you, when when you factor that in as, as a food cost, you know, let's just say for example, it was $12 a pound. If I did a half pound patty, of that my plate cost before it's touched anything is six bucks and now i've got to add 90 cents for the roll whatever toppings will say that costs another dollar that's going to end up let's just say for shits and giggles that cost me nine dollars that's a 27 dollar burger in a restaurant 
Legitimately, yeah. that's a $27 burger. I don't know about you, but I'm not paying $27 for a burger. Like, it's crazy. It, it, it retails it has, for around 16 to 18 in most places. I've seen higher at like fancy yeah. ass places, but yeah, 16 to $18 well, gone, for a burger is, this is was, a lot. And this, this has gone, this has been years at this point. So I'm sure that market has dramatically changed because it was like brand new at the time. But I remember like I was blown away by like what they were trying. I was like, you're, you're nuts. Like, I can get steak for less money. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I was like, I can't. You know, no one's no one's gonna no one's gonna buy it if I put something on the menu for that. But there's another thing that goes into making things. Just if I can't put it on a plate for an affordable cost, I can't sell it. You know, there's there's no reason to do it at that point. What is your favorite dish that you tried to plan and tried to put on a menu, but you couldn't because you just price wise couldn't do it? What was your favorite thing to want to put on a menu that was held off because of cost? Um, there, there's been a lot, man, uh, especially over the course of the past two years, uh, there's been a lot that I've had on the menu and had to take off because of cost. I really can't point to a favorite. I can definitely point to some specific ones that I've had to take off and like people get mad about it, you know, but there's Mm -hmm. nothing you can do. Um, one thing, one thing I used to do, um, you know, I, I do, um, I'm, I'm a ambassador for Traeger Grills. And so we smoke wings. We go through shitloads of them. And we sell a lot of smoked wings at the restaurant. And um, wings literally overnight went from, they were about $60 a case, went to $190 a case overnight. Oh, my God. And um, when that happened, it was not only that. It was that you would order 10 cases and get three. Like there was some really crazy stuff going on with food throughout the pandemic, the whole supply chain. And once the, once the pandemic restrictions were lifted, it was so much worse than what people, I think people outside of the food buying spectrum actually understood. But there was a point where I was like, we're going to ride it out. We're going to wait. We're not going to push this off, this price off on our guests. We're just going to see if it comes back down. You know, like if it comes back down in a week, we're just going to eat the cost. If we, as long as we're covering our cost on it, we're good. We, we don't care. You know, we're not going to piss people off over this. If we lose a couple dollars, you know, whatever. Well, it got worse. So then there came a point I couldn't get them. And I, it was literally like, okay, it's cost prohibitive. I can't get them. Um, I, I can't sell them. Like I just, I can't sell wings. And, that, and it's silly because you don't think that wings are that important. A lot of people right. eat wings, I mean, man. People sell you know, 25 like, cents a piece. Like, you get well, four out of a chicken, like, you know, that's a yeah. dollar right there. And that, that was one thing. Um, there was a, this, this past summer and, you know, being in Maryland, um, this past summer, I had to take everything with crab on it off the menu. Everything. Crab got so, no, not this past summer, the summer before, I'm sorry. Um, because of all of like the, the crazy picking restrictions that happened, um, plus paired with weather and the pandemic and everything else. Uh, jumbo lump crab meat from Maryland, seventy dollars a pound. Oh my god! Yeah, it, that and it's always expensive. You know, it's always like because I, you know, if you get the straight from Maryland stuff, which is the best of the best of the best, it's always expensive. You know, you're gonna pay like there's points of the year you're gonna pay upwards of forty bucks a pound on the wholesale side for it, but like over seventy dollars a pound. Like when you do that and use a little bit of regular lump, and you're making a crab cake, you're only getting like three crab cakes out of a pound by the time you're done. Like you're selling a crab, a crab cake sandwich would be $65 by the time you're done making everything with it. You're like, you can't do that. And 
I remember people were pretty upset, but I'm like, hey, like I can't in good conscience put I can't put this on the menu because two things are going to happen. A, you're going to buy it, you're going to eat it, then you're going to lose your mind at the price. And then you're going to try to do say that something was wrong with it so you don't have to pay for it. And this is one of the only <laughs> industries in the world where people get away with that. And I was like, or it's going to be so expensive, I'm going to make crab cakes. And now a bunch of crabs gave their life for me to throw them in the trash can. I'm not doing it. I'm just not going to do it. So like, there's been a lot of stuff like that. You know, there's, there's some things that I've made that were like really killer. And then I cost it out. I'm like, Oh no, nope. <laughs> no, no, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. But there's no, like, I can't really pinpoint to any specifics because I, I try to, um, I try to think about the cost effectiveness before I even attempt to make it. To be honest with you. And if it's something I think is really cool, that's going to cost too much in the restaurant, I'll make it at home. You know, and I was just like, ah, well, that was either really awesome or, eh, man, that sucked. Like, I'm glad I didn't do that in the restaurant. <laughs> All right. And of course, we're Marylanders. We're talking crabs. Uh, we're we're, we're going to end this out with talking about our favorite crab dish. I'm going to tell you mine. Maybe this sounds white trash of me. I love a crab pretzel. Dude. I crave crab pretzels so much. And like, thank you, Jimmy Seafood, for sending me a box of crab dip so I can make crab pretzels proper up here. Because during the pandemic, I tried to tried to make crab dip, crab pretzels from scratch. I made the pretzels. I got crab meat. I made everything from scratch. And then I realized I ordered or that what my store sold wasn't jumbo lump. It wasn't until I got home that I realized it was uh, claw meat. And I was like, no. Because <laughs> yeah, I lost love that claws. Sweetness. But that, yeah, you lose the sweetness, you lose the butterness, but it also has that, the claws, for some reason, have that fishy, salty taste to them. And I put salt yeah. on the pretzels, and it just became oversalted, and I was so upset at myself, but I was like, it quelled the urge. It wasn't satisfying, but it quelled the urge for a little while, and then I just made, with Jimmy Seafood, they package and send up crab, they'll mail you overnight crabs now. Like, steamed crabs, crab meat, crab Oh, that's, crab dip, that's badass. Oh, yeah, so being up here, I was like, for 180 bucks, I got half a dozen crabs, a pint of crab, uh, cream, a pint of cream of crab, pint of regular crab, uh, a half a pint of of uh, crab dip, uh, two big crab cakes, and then they also sent hammers and bibs, and this was the best. That's part. like a good this value was not in too, the package. One hundred eighty bucks for delivery overnight with yeah. tax. Yeah, here was the thing that sold as this is the greatest product ever. Is they sold they they put uh, they took brown butcher's paper and imprinted newspaper on it so it looks like newspaper and they sent you <laughs> this brown paper that looks like newspaper so you could put it out and eat your crabs on it and i was like this made it so worth every dime is that they, they they don't sell it they don't tell you that they just put it in your box and you open it up and you're like i had they sent me newspaper to eat on this you, is you should beautiful frame it. they care <laughs> you, you should frame it that's that that's like what i said earlier man that's the little details that matter so much man because you think about it, if that wasn't there, you probably wouldn't have noticed it. That little thing being there, that little detail that they gave so much of a shit about might make you buy it again. And it made it made oh, everything better. I will. Yeah, but uh, so thousand percent. My favorite crab dish, I'm gonna tell you two. All right. I'm with you hundred percent on crab pretzels. I fucking love them. Um, I fucking love them. I I don't ever sell them in my restaurants. I never have, I never will. Because I fucking love them. And like, if I do, and like, if I ever do them, I've done some other things with like some weird pretzel type stuff that you could like dip it in, whatever. But I made something a couple years ago. And to this day, I still say it's the best crab dish I've ever made. 
it is one of the most there's another restaurant that i was at as like their corporate chef doing their food for all of their places i really wish they would take my fucking food off of their menu they won't do it because there's a couple items that are like so popular and this is still there <laughs> so everybody knows that sweet and salty work perfect with crabs like sweet salty yep. and like that creaminess dude i made old bay funnel cakes and put crab fondue on top of that and then baked it with some cheddar on top bro it is like a crab pretzel on fucking steroids it's it is so good it's so good dude and like i think i just lost the toe from diabetes just listening to that <laughs> oh my god well the thing is you make the funnel cake it's not I, I was doing it less sugary throwing some old bay in it some old bay on it and then make instead of making the crab dip like straight up and i was also making the funnel cake thinner because the best everybody knows the best part of a funnel cake is like the crispy edges versus the mm -hmm. center you know what i mean like if, if you're the that soggy psych, center yeah if you're the psycho that thinks like the soggy part is the best you're, you're just fucking crazy but like I, I instead of doing the funnel cakes like thick out of like a piper um i was putting them in a squeeze bottle with a fine tip so the whole thing was like super crispy and i would make them oh, to where okay. they were like an inch and a half thick and then i would take it and instead of making crab dip i made it more like fondue style it was a little bit thinner and then i put that on top and then i threw some um that i had like roasted corn uh, i just i threw maryland all over the top of it. a little bit more old bay <laughs> um roasted corn some uh some like garden tomatoes threw that on top so you could it would literally it was so good dude it, it was like sucks because they still i can never I, I the way i am i as a chef you, you know you got my food on your menu whatever I, I when i said they i wish they'd take my fucking food off i really don't give a shit they paid for yesterday's me they can have it but that's the one dish that like <laughs> i really really i would love to be able to get, to give that to our guests but i'm never i i won't i won't do the retreads you know what i mean like i'm not gonna if it, if, if it was something I did years ago somewhere else and they still have it, I'm not going to do it ever again. I just don't believe in doing that. You know, so spoken like a true musician, not wanting to play the hits. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but it's still, you know what, do you know what also like with that, it kind of pisses me off a little bit because this does happen and you don't get a voice as a chef to kind of, you don't get to defend yourself when things happen. Sometimes I will be accused of ripping that off from another restaurant even though it's my dish at that other restaurant, you know, and, Oh man, can I empathize with that as a comedian? Oh, I'm Parallel sure you can thinking, bro. Parallel yeah, thinking. I, yeah. And, and it's, it's happened to me before, dude, like with that, that group that I was at and with alewife, I've done things that are similar because like I said, every chef's style is very similar. I'm like, Oh, that's a rip off of the one that, that blah, 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 blah has been selling for 10 years. <laughs> and it's like, Dude, that was me. That was me, man. Like that's that's mine. I'm like I'm not ripping it off. The new one's better. Like the new one's better. Like so, like eat this one and stop calling me a rip off of myself. Like I just don't understand how that works. Like, but you know, it's just what happens. It's like when John Fogarty got sued for uh, plagiarizing Creedence Clearwater yeah, Revival. Yeah, you're the yeah. John Fogarty of Baltimore chef cuisine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just like I don't know. It is what it is. You know, we just I just roll with the punches, man, and. <laughs> you know, just the next day, but crab pretzels, dude, I'm, I'm a hundred percent with you. I, I don't, a quick story about them before we go. And I always have to mention this, um, kind of a big, big mentor to me was, was my uncle Rob. And, um, 
the first time that he ever came to Maryland as, as like an older, he came to visit me when I opened Dale Wife and he'd never been to Maryland before. Um, he'd been, I think he came like years and years ago to visit my father. But if, if he was here, it'd only been once or twice, like it, very different. I went down to see him a lot, but he just came up and surprised me. He had never seen one of those things before. And, and uh, he, he was from Tennessee. So he had never seen one before. I kid you not. In five days, I think I've had every crab pretzel available at every single restaurant in the entire state of Maryland. Like we went, <laughs> he was like, just the best thing I've ever eaten. And right, everywhere he's going, he like walks in the door. Do you guys have crab pretzels? Let's go somewhere else. Like it was, it was crazy. Like, <laughs> so, uh, so when he, when he opened his restaurant in Tennessee, he literally paid for me to fly down there to teach his kitchen staff how to make crab dip like we do it in Maryland so that he could make crab pretzels there. And it was like one of the highest selling things that they had. So like, it, but it, even then it was like, I ate I, a couple of times, like five of them in a day um, when we were doing that, never got tired of it. Oh, They're so good. You just don't get tired of it. Like every time I see one, I try it. But I, you know, if I go to another state and I see a crab pretzel, I'm not going to eat it. It's not going to be good. Just, I have yet it. to see it anywhere else, so I I don't know what I don't know how they found out about it or what they're what they're doing. But yeah, it's not going to be. It's definitely never going to be the same. And I don't want to be one of those like nobody knows. Like same thing how people are yeah. up here with lobster rolls. They're like no nobody knows how to do a lobster roll like we do in New England. Like uh, everyone knows how to cook lobster because lobster has no flavor. All right, <laughs> I'm going to be that guy where I'm like. Baltimore, nobody knows how to do crab dip better than than Baltimore. But no one, do, no one does it. That's why, like, if I see it somewhere, I'm gonna be so skeptical of what's gonna happen that I'm like, I'm just not even gonna touch it. I'm like, you know what? You go on with that. You have it, enjoy it. I hope your crab pretzel's good, but I don't even want to try it because I've never seen it anywhere else. So I think what that means in reality here is that you and I need to start a truck that looks like an ice cream truck. <laughs> that has one of those big bullhorns on it. You can do comedy while I'm making crab pretzels and we drive to other states and just sell this shit. And if it's not that, good, that, at least it's, at least it's funny on your side. And then we do our best to make these crab pretzels taste good. And we can set the world on fire. Completely. That is our John Favreau chef food truck retirement Absolutely. plan is a mobile comedy crab pretzel truck. All right. Yes. I'm in for it. When, when, when we have the money to do it or the desperation of the need that w this is a pact. Something tells made me in that blood. <laughs> something tells me that desperation will arrive at some point in our lives. <laughs> and when it does, when it does, we have the plan. We have it. This is definitely the uh, guy girl. Hey, when we're 40, we'll just, and we're both saved <laughs> at 40. We'll agree to marry. Yeah. That's well, the don't pact be, we just made. Yeah. Don't be surprised. You're going to be like, Hey, uh, remember 32 years ago, I, we had that conversation. I got a truck. <laughs> and, and you're just on the other end you put glass sunglasses on like i've been waiting for this call <laughs> and just you and a walker me me and a walker just trying to get to a truck together <laughs> telling you it's golden brother all right and this will be the last thing because i, I yeah. did want to talk about this it was in my notes uh i want to get your opinion because i've been having this is a rant that i've been having up here lately is that in early 2000s when like so many bars and restaurants like in fells point in canton in uh uh federal hill and stuff when they started wanting to like up their menu to like nicer food but still kind of keep that neighborhood feel feel 
the first thing they all started doing was switching over to fresh cut potato French fries. Yes. Nobody does fresh cut. If you want to get fresh cut French fries here in Boston, you got to go to five guys. There are restaurants selling like $15 plates of loaded French fries that are bagged frozen French fries that are battered. And I'm like, what is going on? No one with any kind of self-respect could give somebody frozen French fries. Why? Because it doesn't take very much effort to go that small extra mile to do them the right way. And even if they're not done great, it's better. And the way this, I actually had this conversation with another guy one time telling me, he was like, dude, I'm just going to go to frozen fries. And I was like, you don't give a fuck about your guests. You don't care about them at all. And he was like, because fro- I'm like, you know what? If you're going to do frozen French fries, you might as well just go buy fucking tater tots at that point. Because, and even that, yeah. I would make them myself, but you might as well go get the most, go get dinosaur shaped mashed potatoes that you could throw in there. <laughs> because you're literally doing the same thing. At that point, don't try to hide it. Don't fake it. Go all the way. You know what I mean? Go yeah. all the fuck Buy away. your frozen Cisco burger <laughs> patties. Yeah, just go all the way with the frozen shit. Just do it. Because I feel like a lot of people and the companies know this. They make frozen fries to try to make them look like fresh cut fries. Mm-hmm. Like they try to make them look like fresh cut fries. And I can tell. I've yet that I I can't tell you how many companies will like show up at work and be like, Are you interested in buying these French fries? No. Are they potatoes? <laughs> because I didn't know. I'm not interested in them. You know, and then they're like, Oh, well, par- pair them up to yours. I love when people do that to me too. And they do it a lot. Like when people come in and they come into me and they're like, Oh, try this cheese. Let's pair it up with yours. You know what? Go sit down. Let's do that. And then we'll, (laughs) I'll literally won't tell them which one's theirs and I'll make like five and I'll be like, which one's the best. They never pick their own shit. They never, ever do ever. And like, but if they see it, they're going to be like, Oh, this one is the the mouth feels incredible. Like, no, you're wrong. You're, you're, product sucks <laughs> but like they come in with they come in with french fries all the time and they're, and i'm like what makes you i don't own a freezer bro like there's there's our freezer is only for ice cream and it's tiny where am i even gonna put the things if i did have no self-respect you know like <laughs> like it's just like you know and that's and that's like but i feel and and all of my cooks will tell you that, you know, like I said, I don't really get angry, but you want to see me turning red a little bit, fuck French fries up. I swear <laughs> to God. It's, and the reason, the reason I say that is because if somebody, if you get a burger or any sandwich, and this is another one of those little tiny details, the second that hits your table, the first thing that you're doing is taking a bite of French fry. You are not picking your burger up and diving into mm-hmm. the, burger or the sandwich. You're eating a French fry. If your French fry sucks, that could be the best damn burger in the world. Your expectation has automatically been downgraded. And you want to set the bar right away of being like, oh, this is what you're going to get. This is what you're going to get. You think that's good? Eat this burger. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but I, I will I will, I will, rather see French fries going into a trash can than have a fucked up French fry leave my kitchen. And does it happen? Of course. We're not perfect. You know what I mean? But, dude, the amount of potatoes that I go through in that restaurant is obscene. I mean, like absolutely obscene. I go through, there was a shortage on potatoes. I had no issue turning around and being like, send me two whole pallets today. Send me two whole pallets and I'm going to put two whole pallets. For perspective on a pallet, a case is 50 pounds. There's 45 cases in a pallet. Jesus so, God. 
I had no problem saying, send me 90 cases of potatoes. They'll be gone way before they go back. Just send them. I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, so that was the only way that we could get potatoes. I just had to keep doing that. So I use a very, very specific, very specific potato that no one else on the planet uses. I don't think at this point, but it's the best, it's the best thing I've found. But again, like that frozen French fry thing, it, it's horrific. Uh, like, I know it's the worst. It's disappointing every time, every time they're yep. disappointing. And one of the places I was hanging out, I had, had like different flavored fra- frozen ones. They had like a, the regular one, which is breaded. I'm like, gross. They had a spicy one, which was just the same thing, but with, you know, more heat on it. Gross. They had a pickle French fry. I'm like, a t- yeah. why do I want a French fry that tastes like pickles? I love yeah, pickles. Just, I love French fries. Don't want them together. Just sell fried pickles. I, I don't understand why people try to turn everything into fries too. Like there's, you see this shit everywhere where they're like, our asparagus fries brother that's fried asparagus it's fried asparagus do you think calling that an asparagus french fry makes me want it more i want fried asparagus i'm cool with that i like it i don't want asparagus french fries because you call it chicken fries really man the chicken fries it's fried fucking chicken like what what is the purpose of chicken fries like I don't understand. Asparagus it. fries is what you tell your kids asparagus is to get them to eat vegetables. Exactly. It's just the same way. No self-respect. You have to treat adults like they like they are little children to make them eat things sometimes. But now, instead of doing that, you're treating adults like children to be able to market crap. Like literally <laughs> to be able to market actual shit. You know, like I I could go on for an hour about some of this shit. It boggles my mind. It boggles my mind. Some of the stuff that people do. I just don't get dude. Fucking boneless wings. Are you kidding me, man? Like, are you kidding me? They're chicken nuggets, dude. Like, Oh yeah. They're chicken nuggets. I don't like the boneless good. wing word, but I, yeah. I order them over they're regular good. wings because I don't want to use my hands. Yes. I'll, guess I'll what? defend having, having, but they're, you're right. They should be called chicken Dennis, nuggets, boneless wings. They should be called chicken good. nuggets. They're fucking good. If you are ashamed of yourself for ordering chicken nuggets as an adult, then don't fucking order them. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> changing the name doesn't make it any different. Like it's, you're still eating chicken nuggets, dude. It's the same thing as decaf coffee. Like just call it something else. <laughs> just call it something else. At this point. Uh, excuse like, me. Can I have the dino shaped boneless wings, please? <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Like, I, I will never, I will never understand it, dude. Like diet candy, like just makes no sense to me. Like just, I just I'll never get it, bro. All right. Well, this has been great. It's been fun catching up. Yeah, man. And it's been fun to like learn the, your, your life before we knew each other, because in the music industry is like when, I don't know about other music scenes, but the Baltimore scene feels a lot like being in a war together. Like it there's does. just a brotherhood between people and it's like everyone from the music scene that I was friends with every time I hang out, talk to him, see him, whatever. It's like no time has ever passed. It is. Even it though is, we haven't talked in 10 years, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's crazy because back in those days, you know, a lot of us have moved on. A lot of us have moved to other things. A lot of us found the things in life. I'm so stoked that you're still doing what you were doing back then. Like I'm really, really stoked and that you're doing it at such a high level now that like that means a a lot to me to see that out of you and to see that out of other people because so many of us from that scene, dude, I mean, you know, as well as I do went in a very bad direction in their life. And, you know, any one of us could have taken that same 
you know, the party could have taken us too. you know, it could have taken you, it could have taken me, it could have taken any of us, Um, you know, and it it really makes me happy to see the people that it didn't and see where they are in their life. And it's been, it's been amazing to catch up with you and and we got to do it more. Yeah. And I'm happy that you have found happiness and still can play and not need to have the depression or the sadness of not making it or living up to some standard because I know I can't, here's my sad thing is I know I can't quit comedy. I'm never going to be happy if I stop doing this. And I, that's what I, I, I don't want from any of my friends in the music industry is I don't want them to stop music and then regret it. If you want to yeah. have a family and a day job and play music on the side and that makes you content, that's what I want from you. If you know the old dudes that do cover bands is like, Damn, they look like, like, we all hate cover bands when we were long. Like, how can you play covers? But then you look at just a bunch of 60-year-old you, dudes yeah. playing in a cover band, and they're just happy. They're content. Yeah, you, that's you what learn I exactly, want from everybody. You learn exactly why they do it, too. Because I've thought to myself before, like, you know, there was a big chunk where over our eyes we could not, we were having all kinds of issues getting a drummer. Like, we had a guy die um, who would, he literally was with us for a day. Like we, we didn't really know the guy. So like, obviously not saying anything bad about him, but like literally like he joined the band. Uh, he came to a practice. We all liked him. He died. Like, And it was just like, Jesus. what the fuck do we have to do to get it? It's a- like being cursed. Bro, we had a drummer join a cult. He joined a cult and disappeared. I'm not, I'm not making that up. Like he basically joined a cult and vanished. So it was like, we, we just, we were like spinal tap with drummers. Like we could not get, get it. But like, when that was happening, I literally thought to myself, like, man, it's really hard to write songs and write them with people. And if this is not going to work, I'm going to go start a fucking Ramones cover band just because it'll be really easy to just get together and be like, hey, let's do this just so we can play some music. Like, I don't give a oh, shit. Oh, you mean the Huntington's? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hey, those, those are my boys, man. My boys. Yeah, so Chris has been on the podcast. Yeah. Chris has been on yeah. the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I fuck with them all the time. You you remember me and Chris were roommates back in the day. Yeah, I mean, it's still, yeah. I, I, they're, 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 when they come on my Spotify, I don't change it. I'm like, yep, no, yeah. this is staying on because know, it's still I, good. I, I break I break their balls too all the time. But they, those are my boys, <laughs> man. Like I, I love those dudes. They just put out they just put out the coolest shirt I've ever seen. It's literally their logo written as the Hammerjacks logo from the eighties. Oh, you know that that is so good and wonderful, but then also going to get lost on so many people. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> it's not lost on me. Like, it's no, a, yeah. We are the target me. audience for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Chad. Well, it's been great catching up with you been and, a pleasure, and talking brother. to you and man, we could go for hours on crazy stories, but we'll leave it at the ones that we told. Awesome. All right, brother. <laughs>